That's right, everyone. Welcome back to 80s High, the podcast that gathers around the kitchen table to gab about the best pop culture from that radical decade. I'm Chris. And I'm Ben. And this is 80s High. Welcome, everybody. Oh my gosh, what a great episode. We have so much fun in store talking about the Golden Girls, but we're not quite there yet. It's homeroom, right, Ben? Right, and we are here to put the cheesecake in your week, if I could say. Mm. We, we are here to bring the sunshiny South Florida light to your gray fall days. You know, we're in the Pacific Northwest. We're getting into the <laughs> fall true. and winter. We could use some sunny Miami days. Uh, <laughs> goodness. Any way we can get them. But uh, anything going on recently? Anything we should talk about before we go to history class? As a follow-up to our Watchmen episode, I saw a very brief interview with Alan Moore, oh. who was being grilled on his opinion of Stan Lee. Interesting. And knowing what a cheerful ray of Florida Golden Girl sunshine See, Alan Moore I was going to say, is, speaking of sunshine, what did old uh, <laughs> Chipper Alan have to say? It was qu- actually quite the long uh, diatribe, but in short, as to no surprise of anyone... Um, not a fan of Stan Lee, frankly, for taking the credit for a lot of other creatives work. Fair enough. Namely, his main story is about Jack Kirby and and inventing most of those Marvel characters and being pretty upset about that. But it's been a while since I've seen Alan Moore talk. So it was kind of a very engaging interview. Listen, I don't have a dog in that fight. I don't know enough of the details. I'll just say this much. If there are people taking credit for others' work and not attributing credit where it's due, I take umbrage with that. umbrage has been taken. Umbridge has been taken. So if that's truly the case, then I uh, I agree with more, shockingly. Yeah. From yeah, one yeah. curmudgeon to another, we <laughs> both agree. And a surprise to nobody. Don't steal credit, everybody. There's literally no reason to do it. No reason. No reason. You, just, no. you look like a dirtbag when you get called out. And you're going to get a shoulder shimmy from at least two of us if you're a dirtbag. Because that's what shoulder shimmies are for including Pat Benatar. She will shoulder shimmy you as well. So just like, just watch yourself. You don't want Pat or 80s High coming after you. No, not at all. Two forces to be reckoned with. Two unrelenting forces. <laughs> now I have one more thing. I do have to ask you a question about Homeroom, but before I get to that, do you have anything that you've uh, scratched the surface of 80s or updates for us in Homeroom? So I do want to shine a little light on an artist that you actually featured on our Instagram a while back now. Uh, you posted this very beautiful piece of artwork from artist Rashid Latf. I hope I'm saying oh, your name yeah, right, Rashid. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. You sure do. This is a beautiful piece of what I would call nostalgia artwork. And really all of his stuff is that way, depicting like movie, video game, or pop culture. And the one you posted specifically was this like 80s tableau. So good. Straight from a high school locker. You had the sports almanac from Back to the Future 2. There's a Game Boy, a Walkman, a mixtape with a pencil in the spoke. Yeah. A skateboard, Kodak film roll, Converse, and believe it or not, that's maybe like half of what is packed into this image. And it was just super cool. 
it led me down the rabbit hole of checking out his Instagram profile. It's beautiful. It's amazing. There's tons of stuff there. I believe you can even purchase the artwork. Yeah, yeah, So, yeah. you know, I don't think we have any connection to Rashid, but you should go follow him. It's Rashid Lotf. That's R-A-C-H-I-D-L-O-T-F. Wonderful amazing. plug. I love it. Great call. Yeah, I loved his art. That was great to highlight on our stream. I stumbled into an 80s movie. Like I told you, I'm trying to fill in the gaps of like popular 80s movies that I didn't see, that I missed. That's right. Yes. And this week's was a fascinating little love and death tryst between Christian Slater and Winona Ryder and 1988's Heathers. Yes. Which that's I had right. never seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got about 9,000 questions we don't have time for on this podcast. Have you seen Heathers? And if so, what are your memories and impression of that movie? It is such a long time ago. The thing I just remember are people's heads in the ground and they're playing croquet with them. That's how is it that opens. Correct? That's like the starting oh, scene. Oh, that's the yeah. opening. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That is literally, I think, all I remember. It's been so long. The first act, you're like, oh, this is 1988's Mean Girls. Mm. Cool. This is where the, the other Mean Girls came from. Right. And then it turns into like a serial killer story. And it's bonkers and strange and weirdly has a lot of cast overlap with Beetlejuice from the same year. It goes off the rails. And I'm, you know, I'm going to be fair. I'm still processing. I'm going to have to talk to somebody about it. It's, it's a lot to swallow. It's a big Maybe one. it needs to be a future episode of 80s High so we can give it the proper deep dive. Clearly, it deserves for you to, if nothing else, just figure this all out in your brain. I really could. I need the help. Speaking of a group of sprightly young women plotting the demise of their enemies, should we move on today's topic in history class? Well, we should, but as you are want to forget, we need those morning announcements first so we know what's going on at lunch and after school today. So let's hear it now. Attention 80s high, I'm Margie, here to share today's homeroom announcements. If you're looking for delicious cheesecake recipes, follow 80s high podcast on Instagram. Today's lunch menu will be Spearhoven Krispies, an ancient Scandinavian midnight snack, candied herring with red hots for eyes, and you'll have three options for desserts. The Gnook and Fluken cake, Vanskat Coker, a friendship cake, and of course, cheesecake. If you're nice to Betty, the lunch lady, she may even let you have a little extra. If you're loving 80s high, consider supporting the show by dropping a rad review or rating it on Apple, telling a classmate to tune in, or even chipping in a few dollars at coffee.com. It sounds like coffee, but it's spelled K-O-F-I. I would love to roast the hosts, but they're a perfect blend. After school today, the Seniors Club will be hosting a murder mystery party. Bring your smarts and your sass for an unforgettable evening. You won't be able to see the football team play today. The Fightin' Mogwais are in Miami for the finals tournament against the St. Olaf Bears. Thank you, and have a gernockin' knockin' day. Go Mogwais! Okay, fantastic. Well, Ben, I think we should gather on the lanai. Oh, yeah! Recline in our lounge chairs and tell the story of how the Golden Girls came to be in history class. Absolutely. I'm going to sashay down the hallway in this very comfortable evening gown. You wear it so well. <laughs> strut, Ben, strut! <laughs> All right, guys, I was laying out here on the, on the lanai on my little recliner. 
I wasn't moving. Ben put a mirror under my nose to see if I was still breathing because uh, I had my sunglasses on. I remember that scene. Lanai is like, if you're, this is like PB Herman. Like, if you hear Lanai, like, everybody yell, everything lights up. That's some good vocabulary from Golden Girls. Well, and apparently it wasn't a well-known term at that time. Like, outside of Florida, pretty much, the word Lanai, because, like, a lot of other places, they're actually called Florida rooms. Yeah, Uh, But it's like, you wouldn't call it a Florida room in Florida, like, the here room. So, I guess Lanai became, like, a thing, which is interesting. I would love to see, like, a spike in the late 80s of, like, contractors getting requests for Lanai's all of a sudden. Like, just in, like, a little five-year window or something. Oh, man. Well, we're here to talk about... The Golden Girls, oh my gosh, as if you don't know what it is, but let's just all go back to history class and we're going to start at the beginning because this is an American sitcom. It airs on NBC from 1985 to 1992, totaling 180 half-hour episodes spanning seven seasons. Wow. Ben Do you want to give us a little crack at the story that we are being told across? I mean, condensed, cliff notes. I'm not going to say, can you recap all 180 episodes for us right here? what's What's the premise? What is Golden Girls all about? As simply as I can put, it is four older single women. Three of them are widows. One's divorced. That all share a home in Miami. The one who owns the house is widow. Oh my gosh, do I get... Do I get the privilege of saying the names on this episode? I feel so special. You sure do. Uh, Blanche Devereaux, mm. who owns it. And she's joined by fellow widow Rose Nyland mm-hmm. and divorcee Dorothy Zbornak. Yeah. And if that's not enough attitude and charm and heart. We need a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Dorothy's 80-year-old widowed mother, Sophia Petrello, <laughs> joins mm. them as well. To complete this this quartet of sass, support, and joy. I love those three words. Sass, support, <laughs> and joy. That's what we're here for on 80s High as well. So that's perfect. So how does this show come to be? Well, as best as I can tell, the show initially came from NBC executive Brandon Tartikoff. He said while visiting his aunt one day, his elderly aunt, he saw how she and her next-door neighbor, who was also her best friend, were interacting. They were arguing. They were bickering. But they were still friends and loved each other. And Tartikoff thought, wow, this could make a great show. Well, during the filming of a television special at NBC Studios in 1984, there was a skit that was performed by Selma Diamond. At that time, she was on Night Court. And Doris Roberts. Uh, she was on Remington Steel. And this skit was, they were trying to promote this concept of a show tentatively titled, did you get this title, Ben? It was great. It was fantastic. I thought it was hilarious. What is it? Well, it's a parody skit called Miami Nice, which is sort of parodying Miami Vice. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. So they're doing this parody about old people living in Miami. Well, NBC senior vice president Warren Littlefield was among the executive producers in the audience, and he was just blown away. He loved it. They were all amused. And he was like, I can envision a series based on this kind of humor that the two actors were portraying in this skit. So producers Paul Younger-Witt and Tony Thomas were asked to work on a pilot script 
for the show. Now, Ben, do you know what plays out at this point? Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that these guys were originally pitching a show about a female lawyer. So this was like going through sort of the weird creative uh, blender at the time. And Littlefield did not like their idea about the female lawyer. He said, guys, Miami Nice, that's where I need you to focus. And right. the, the regular writers declined. They're like, we're not really interested. So he asked his wife, Susan Harris, who had been sort of like kind of retired. And she used to be a writer. I'm so glad this came up on the ABC. Yeah, this is Paul Younger Witt's wife, by the way. Thank you. Yes, sorry. And she had been a writer on Soap. And mm-hmm. dude, I don't know why. I wish I had a, a good explanation. But as a very little kid, I was exposed to Soap. And I remember watching episodes of Soap at like the age oh. of like seven. You know, I've never seen that show. It's a soap opera. I, okay. I never was into soap operas. I never really enjoyed it. I can't tell you anything about soap. Did a family just, member like your mom or somebody else watch know. it? I don't know. I feel like it was on like a really weird channel like it shouldn't have been. Like Comedy Central mm. or something late at night. Because like my mom always taped all my children. And I hated soap operas. But like my brother and I had to watch it. Because when she came home from work... She would watch her show. We only had one TV, so we'd just sit there and grumble and watch All My Children. <laughs> all My Children. <laughs> so I, was like, I just yes. imagine it was the same thing for you. You were just kind of stuck watching. Yeah, so. no, it was like, the weirdest part is like as a child, it was a choice by myself. Okay. And I just don't remember why. I would love to go watch some episodes of Soap and see if I could figure out why. But at any rate, they had been assigned by NBC to write this pilot around women who were around 40 years old. Right. And uh, she was like, nah, I'm going to make him 60. And she wrote him like much older. And Littlefield actually really likes her script that she comes back with and green lights it for production. He said he was running around saying, God, this is brilliant. There's nothing trendy about this show. There are no tricks. It's a classic. Oh, nice. Beautiful. And what was interesting is she was kind of semi-retired. She didn't really want to continue working in television. But apparently this concept really just grabbed hold of her and Susan had said like you don't really see this demographic being portrayed or showcased on television and so right. she's got one foot in retirement right. and then she's like oh, <laughs> all right I gotta put my you know writing hat back on and she gets back into the studios and uh, bangs out this amazing pilot it's sort of like the girls in the show where like in one way or another they all thought their lives were kind of winding down and they're like no yeah? bam back in the game baby That's right. So we're really off to the races at this point. And let's talk a little bit then about casting. So you've got this great premise. Well, we need the people to bring these roles to life. Ben, what do you know about the casting of our first character to get the role of Sophia Petrello? Right. So Sophia is the first of the four to actually get cast. Mm -hmm. Uh, Estelle Getty who nails the role, auditioned, and she's, you know, like we mentioned, she's the feisty mother of Dorothy, which is fun, like, you know, this mother-daughter dynamic that's among the four of them, which is which is great. And part of the reason was to make the other three characters seem young. Like, you could refer to them as girls because you had this 80-year-old mother right. amongst these 60-something women, and so that kind of gave them a youthfulness in comparison. Although I, I forgot in my notes, were, but isn't she younger than actually like technically Estelle is younger than some of the other three? Uh, she's the youngest, I believe. She's the youngest of she, all four. No, no, yeah. no. I, I take that back. I think Rue was the youngest. She was the second youngest. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay but okay. she was definitely younger than right. V, who plays her daughter. They had to age her up quite a bit. I love it. I think she did like four hours of makeup or something like that. It That's was insane. Yeah. 
So she was on the radar because she was in this off-Broadway production in 1984 in L.A. of Torch Song Trilogy that did yeah. really, really great. And the the casting director, Judith Weiner, had seen that and was like, we got to get her. She's got to be one of the Golden Girls. And if you don't know, and th- this comes into play a little bit later, but Torch Song Trilogy is this collection of three plays by Harvey Firestein. And it tells the story of this character, Arnold Beckoff, who is a Jewish homosexual, drag queen, and torch singer living in New York City in the late 70s and 80s. Uh, and she plays the mother. And apparently, she stole the performance. Yeah. And she's so good originally in like early scripts. Sophia was just supposed to be like a reoccurring guest character. But yeah. everybody loved her so much. They're like, oh, she's got to be a core, a core of the four. She can't just be coming in once in a while. Absolutely. The thing about Estelle, though, that's sort of famous, and if you haven't really gotten into the Golden Girls, you might not know this, is she suffered from crippling stage fright. This was shocking. Did you know this before? No, I had no idea. Yeah, okay, I didn't either. And so she had the stage fright of performance. You know, a lot of the cast members talked, you know, she would get to the point where she could be non-communicative before a scene where she was just so nervous, kind of in her head. You know, every season it got harder to the point where, like, she had trouble remembering her lines. She tried hypnosis to try and get over her anxiety, and nothing just ever seemed to work. In fact, the whole cast often had to stay behind after the live studio audience recording and after the audience left to redo lots of scenes where Getty had forgotten her lines or flubbed her lines or missed her cues. You know, we'll get to Rue McClanahan in a second, but of Getty, she said, you know, she'd panic. She would start getting under a dark cloud the day before tape day. You could see a big difference in her that day. She'd be walking around like Pigpen under a black cloud. By tape day, she was unreachable. She was just as uptight as a human being could get. When your brain is frozen like that, you can't remember lines. What's so shocking about that is that obviously her performance is amazing. So many people love that character. I mean, we love all all four of these characters, right? They're so good. Yeah. But also knowing that they had to redub the lines, you know, kind of work it in with the original, I'm assuming, audience reaction to whatever she was saying really also goes to show how well the editing is. Like you would never know. You, have you would no have idea. no freaking clue. And apparently it was because she was very nervous about being – in the presence of these three very well-known mm, oh, actors. Interesting. Basically, it was imposter syndrome. She was afraid she would be found out to oh, be a hack, which again is is just so sad because she was wonderful and amazing. Oh she did such a great job. And to end her background on a positive note, kind of, I guess, comically, is how her character ends up in the house with everyone. It's like the first episode, and she's there in the house to everyone's surprise. And it's because her retirement home, Shady Pines, has burned to the ground. Yeah. And she, like, hitched a ride. You know, Dorothy's got to run out and pay the taxi cab driver who's trying to overcharge her by, like, 60 bucks. Uh, But yeah, that's how she ends up with the girls, is her retirement home burns down. So next are the parts for Blanche and Rose. Yes. But this is not what you would expect. Right. Both Rue McClanahan and Betty White were in consideration. The series Mama's Family, in which those two co-starred, had been canceled by NBC. Mm-hmm. Now, previously, Rue McClanahan had co-starred with B. Arthur in Maud. Have you ever seen Maud? No, I watched a couple just like quick clips on YouTube to try and understand what Maud was all about. But no, I, I never watched Maud. It's so interesting to go back and see both of those actors. First off, you know, they look quite a bit younger. I can't remember what the time difference was. 
But also, of course, seeing Rue not speaking in her her Georgia accent, you know, was just so uh, striking. She's talking in her, I, I would guess, normal voice or accent. Uh, but just really interesting to see that. And also how much the Dorothy character is so much like Maude. But yes. we'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then previously... Betty had been on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Now, this is where it's really kind of interesting. The producers originally wanted Rue to play a version of Vivian Cavender from Maude. Right. And Betty White to play a version of the man-hungry Sue Ann Nivens that she was on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Right. But the actors were like, we don't want to be typecast. We don't want to play the same character again. So they actually had them read the other parts and Rue had recalled in an interview of like, it just suddenly clicked. She's like, Rose didn't work for me. Yeah. You know, I can't speak for Betty, but I don't think Blanche worked for her. And so just that simple switch, something went off and suddenly it was like, okay, we've got our characters of Blanche and Rose. And it's not what we expected, but ultimately it was the best decision ever. Oh, 100%. And it, and again, yeah, if you've never seen this show, like, Rose is this naive, sweet lady who has, like, shockingly weird stories from her childhood growing up in rural St. Olaf, Minnesota, that, like, always catches yep. everyone off guard. But yep. she always has these kind of, like, great one-lines of, like, just not understanding what everyone else is talking about. That's very sweet. And kind of like you described, like, Blanche Devereaux is still very hungry on the hunt. And is is always out on the prowl and the various stories and always makes it exciting. And I just love trying to picture them in reversed roles. The casting was correct, what they did. But it's fun to picture it's that. It's so hard to imagine. Yeah. It, yeah. it was funny. I think Rue even mentioned like the first time that Betty played Rose. And she's like, she just had this like dead-eyed, faraway look when she was like confused by something. And she was like, Betty just nailed it right out of the gate. It was so perfect. Oh, my God. Now, this is funny. So Susan Harris created the character of Dorothy as a, quote, B. Arthur type in mind. And I feel like we've done this before where someone's like, we want a blank person, but they don't think they can get that actor. So they're like, give me that person. And all of a sudden, like that ends up being the person in the role. And I know we've talked about this before. I mean, is it kind of like, is it like Henson with Labyrinth where he was like, I always wanted a rock star to play the role and I would love to get David Bowie. No way I'll get like... Or was he like, was David Bowie in the bag from the start? I can't remember. I don't think David Bowie was the first consideration. I believe it was Michael Jackson. So like, it wasn't quite like that. But imagine if he said, I want a Bowie-like character for Jareth. Yeah. And then suddenly was like, well, we can't get Bowie. And then they did. So it's kind of like that. I know we've talked about that before with something else. Can't quite remember. Uh, You know, message us on Gmail or Instagram or something and tell us, you know, hey, dum-dums, you forgot this. Of course. (laughs) Thank you. We appreciate the help. So- Littlefield and the producers initially envisioned actress Elaine Stritch for the part. Now, Elaine's been in tons of stuff. I loved her most recently. She was in 30 Rock, and she did such an amazing job. But are you familiar with Stritch at all, Ben? No. Have you seen her in anything? I okay, do you do you know this story of why she didn't get the part? I know that the audition did not go great, but that's all I pretty much know. Okay, so apparently... She was felt to be too vulgar for the role. And later, Stritch admits that she kind of sabotaged herself because she went into the audition insisting on cussing. And everyone was like, no, "No, don't do that. We don't want you to cuss. That's not the kind of show this is. We need to see that you can play the role. And she did it anyway. (laughs) And so they were like, 
we're done here. So stretches out. I did see her quote though, after she blew that audition that she says, quote, because it's just fun. I blew a multi-million zillion dollar international syndicated residual grabbing bopperoni smasheroni television situation comedy entitled The Golden Girls. Wow. I never heard bopperoni smasheroni. I, I like her creativity there. A million zillion dollars. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of dollars. Basically, they come back and they're like, ah, Rue, can you persuade B. Arthur to play this role? <laughs> and so Rue's like, you know, okay, I'm going to do it. They have this conversation. It's not going well. Rue's like, why would you turn down this amazing role, read the script, and, you know, B's like, you and I are playing our roles from Maude. Betty White's just that same character from Mary Tyler Moore. And Rue was like, oh, no, 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 no. We actually flipped the roles. And then B was like, oh, now we're cooking with gas. <laughs> and apparently between that and just loving the script, she was finally convinced to join the cast as Dorothy's Bornack. And thus, we have our four you thought the Lord of the Rings group was epic. No, now we have the true <laughs> Fellowship of Miami. Just a few fun things I thought were interesting about B. Arthur. One, before acting, she was a truck driving Marine. So she was a volunteer in the U.S. Marine Corps as one of the first members of the Women's Reserve before World War II, which I oh, thought that was amazing. pretty sweet. Like, B. Arthur is not here to mess around. She knows what's up. I mean, we know she's not, but now we know a little bit more why right. she's not, <laughs> right, right? Right, right, Great. I watched a lot of season one to get ready for this. And in season one, you see, like, B. Arthur get sort of mocked in the script a lot for her appearance in different ways. Like, particularly by Blanche, who thinks very highly of herself and her manhunt around a right. vulnerable Miami. And after season three, B. Arthur was like, no more. You can't write in the script any more jokes about my physical appearance. I don't like it. And just would have seen B. Arthur in Golden Girls. I feel like when B. Arthur says jump, you beg her to tell you how high. Like she does not <laughs> screw around. And Christopher Lloyd in the production said, yeah, that was a big mistake we made to be insensitive to someone who is extremely sensitive. And we pushed those jokes too far. Christopher Lloyd, by the way, the writer, not right. Christopher Lloyd, oh, the that actor. That kept driving me nuts in this research that I kept thinking like, <laughs> like uh, I don't know, Blanche, we got to go back. We got to go back. Like, we have no. to go back, Blanche, to the future. To the future, different Christopher. So just a little bit about the cast and these characters, because we'll be referring to them as, a, again, a refresher, most likely. B. Arthur playing Dorothy's Bornack. She's a substitute teacher. She's born to her Sicilian immigrant parents, of course, Sophia and Salvatore Petrello. We learn through her backstory that she became pregnant in high school and ends up marrying Stanley's Bornack. They're together for about 38 years, but then divorce when Stan leaves to hook up with a young flight attendant. Yeah. Dorothy is the practical, sarcastic, short-tempered, frequently the brunt of jokes, about her supposed lack of attractiveness, at least through season three. Yeah, and then we shut that down. And B puts her foot down and no more. Betty White plays Rose Nyland. She's a Norwegian-American, oh as you God. mentioned, Ben, from a small farming town of St. Olaf, Minnesota. Portrayed as naive, known for these peculiar stories of life growing up in St. Olaf. We learn that she was happily married to Charlie Nyland, but he does die, and then she moves to Miami. And we do see that she's later becomes romantically involved with a college professor, Miles Weber. Love it. Rose is portrayed as sweet, kind. 
she can be competitive, and many of the jokes about Rose focus on her perceived lack of intelligence. Rue McClanahan as Blanche Devereaux, a Southern belle employed at an art museum. She's born into a wealthy family, grew up on a plantation outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, She does relocate to Miami, where she lived with her husband, George, until his death. And Blanche is portrayed as self-absorbed and man-hungry, as you said, Ben. Uh, (laughs) Many of the jokes focus on her promiscuity. Estelle Getty is Sophia Petrello. She's born in Sicily, moves to New York after fleeing an arranged marriage. I didn't remember this part. Right? Instead, marries her husband, Sal. They have three children together, one of which is Dorothy. And as you mentioned, uh, when the show starts, she's a resident of Shady Pines Retirement Home because she had a stroke prior to the start of the series. That's why she's moved yeah, in right. there. You might be like, she's so vivacious. She's so mobile. She's so, right, she's got her stuff right. together. Why would she be in a home? Well, it's because, you know, she had a, a severe health event. Uh, but she does move in with our characters and, of course, becomes a an integral part. She's portrayed as quick-witted, straight talker, and a great cook. And something else about Sophia I love, and I, I hope I'm not jumping the gun here before chemistry, but I just love she often makes a lot of mention to her family's tie to the mafia that are oh, very yeah. like casual, but concerning. Like she's always worried of like which hitmen are about to get out of jail from their term or like right. where, where <laughs> bodies might be hidden, that kind of stuff. And it's always like, it's a sweet little old lady saying these things that you're like, wait, what did she just say? And we as the audience, every time there's a knock at the door, you're like, oh my gosh, her past is finally <laughs> caught up it. to her. She's so good. There's a lot of recurring characters. I do just want to mention a couple yeah. that do show up. Quite a bit, uh, particularly this first one, Stanley's Bornak. Yeah, played by Herb Edelman. Uh, this is that cheating, freeloading ex-husband of Dorothy's that we mentioned, uh, who left the marriage. He does eventually marry another woman, Catherine, uh, but they do end up also getting divorced within the run of the show. I guess he worked as a unsuccessful novelty item salesman. Is this the dad from Gremlins? Remember, he was that novelty. (laughs) Well, he was an inventor, I suppose. Also a salesman. He sold his own wares, but uh, maybe they knew each other. They were both in that same sales circuit together, the smokeless ashtray. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) But apparently he does eventually become a successful entrepreneur by inventing a utensil used to open baked potatoes. So I don't know, maybe he A utensil and, uh, used to open, like a knife? He invents the knife? Okay, got me, it. Maybe he and the father from uh, Gremlins do become, you know, co-inventors. Oh my God, that's great. Uh, a lot of his plot lines do center around the fact that Dorothy is still bitter about the divorce. Sure. Bitter on the way he left her and ruined their marriage. And over the course of the show, there's attempts at reconciliation on both of their parts. They do finally kind of make amends by the end of the show. And then later we uh, we do get Miles Weber, as I mentioned, a boyfriend of Roses from season five onward, played by Harold Gould. Interestingly enough, Gould also guest starred in the first season as Arnie Peterson, also playing Rose's boyfriend, her oh first gosh. boyfriend, in fact, after her husband Charlie's death. So this is one of those things that happens where they like recast the same actor in a different role. And you just have to sort of suspend disbelief. But if you didn't pick up on that, you'd be like, well, wait, didn't she date Miles in yeah, the very wait first a season? Second. Not exactly. Same actor, different character. My goodness. And I'll throw them out there just rapid fire, but there are a lot of really fun cameos that happen throughout the series as well. You've got George Clooney, Quentin Tarantino, Dick Van Dyke, Jeffrey Tambor, Mickey Rooney, Bob Hope, Jerry Orbach, Hal Linden, Rita Moreno, Sonny Bono, Alex Trebek. 
Debbie Reynolds, and actually, I don't know if it's as much of a cameo. It's kind of a cameo, but Leslie Nielsen. But he plays a pretty important yeah. role at the conclusion of, of the series. But um, yeah, this is a great, a great show with a lot of great cast popping in and out of it. Yeah, and some of them play themselves, and some of them are playing yeah, characters. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. there's, you know, kind of like a lot of shows, you do get a mix uh, of those. And I'm sure we might mention some of them when we get to chemistry class. Uh, the pilot, though, very interesting. Two more characters to talk about. Oh, please. And the pilot, Ben, we talked about this before we started recording. There's another character. Oh, right. That only shows up one time. Do you want to talk about this character? <laughs> yeah, the original pilot? Oddly has a gay cook in the kitchen who cooks all the meals for them and provides, I don't know, I would call some half-effort advice on some of the challenges they're facing. More sassy commentary. Okay, If the show doesn't have enough sassy commentary, he's there to provide more. more. (laughs) We need more. Character's name is Coco, by the way, played by Charles Levin. He has less time on the show than Leslie Nielsen at the series end. So why was this guy here and then where did he go? Yeah, so the writers were observing that, like, in many of the scripts, the main interaction between the women was occurring in the kitchen while they're preparing or eating food. We all know those scenes where they're all swirling about, they're at the table, somebody's, you know, chopping something, stirring a pot, whatever. And they decided, you know what, a separate cook just distracts from the friendship. And as you mentioned earlier, Sophia was not originally intended to be a main character, but after Getty blew away the test audiences and the previews, the producers were like, okay, we've got gold here. Let's bring Sophia into the mix. We no longer need this other character. And so Coco is written out after the pilot. Peace out, Coco. We wish you well. Good luck on your culinary adventures. Uh, Another interesting tidbit about the pilot is that Blanche was described initially as more Southern than Blanche Dubois. Uh, yeah, uh, from right, Streetcar right. Named Desire. So McClanahan was like, okay, well, I'm you know, going to develop this strong Southern accent. And the director of the pilot was like, no, 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 no. I want you to speak in your normal Oklahoman accent. She's like, uh, okay. <laughs> so she does. If you watch the pilot, her accent is very, it's not way different, but it's definitely much more subtle. Yeah, it's muted. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's muted is a good way to put it. Uh, But once the show's picked up for the first season, a new director comes on for that first episode and was like, oh, complete opposite. You must do this Southern accent. I mean, I wouldn't say she's like a full foghorn leghorn, but it's a pretty big swing. You say you say it's a pretty big swing. (laughs) I say I say (laughs) there's a man out there. Oh, Uh, mercy. Mercy. So again, the pilot does so well. The show's instantly picked up. One more character we need to talk about. Ben, you just had a few fun facts about the house. The house shows up in every episode. Tell us about the house. That is true. Yeah, the house is such a common piece that it is a character in and of itself. Now, fictionally, the house's address is 6151 Richmond Street, Miami. But the whole facade that the show cuts to every time kind of in between scenes, the real facade is at 245 North Saltaire Avenue. Uh, in the Westgate Heights neighborhood of L.A. So what's interesting is that house was only used for the first couple of seasons. Eventually, there is a back lot uh, at Universal Studios where they uh, shoot the remaining exteriors of that house. And I've seen that house. I was on the... Oh, no way. Gosh. As a child, visiting my family in Florida, my grandparents, we went to MGM Studios. Part of the tour was you would drive around the back lot and see some of these exteriors. And I remember 
the tram oh. and the tour guide just stopping in front of the Golden Girls house, That's uh, which awesome. sadly was damaged, uh, I think, from hurricane weather or a storm at some point oh. uh, and was destroyed. It had to be torn down. But womp, womp. Uh, I did get to see that little piece of the exterior oh, while that's it still red. existed. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about the interior. Fortunately, one of the one of the prime sets for the interior of the kitchen already existed. It was used on an earlier ABC sitcom, It Takes Two, which aired from 82 yeah. to 83. So boom, just a little set dressing and the kitchen is ready to go for the Golden Girls. Early example of recycling in the 80s. There you <laughs> Look go. Look at that. Thanks, 80s. Way to get, way to get it started. Reu- <laughs> reduce, reuse. That's right. And the show's designer, Ed Stevenson, uh, had also lived in Florida for a long time. So he had a lot of exposure to, like, the Florida look that the Golden Girls' house took on. You know, these ideas of the wood accents and columns. Doors were painted to kind of look like bald cypress wood, um, which was very popular in the area. And rattan furniture, all the tropical printed couch cushions and blankets everywhere. And, of course, what's our bingo um, Pee Wee Herman word? For this episode? The lanai. The lanai. I will see you on the lanai. I feel like Blanche says all the time. Uh, But that's everything I have for the house. Yeah. You know, again, it's one of those things that you don't think about as being a character, but it appears in every episode. And like you said, home is where the heart is. And a lot of (laughs) scenes, most of the scenes take place at the house. A couple more things. The theme song, of course, is another (gasps) thing that's always (sighs) with us. We all know and can sing along to this iconic song. It's sung by Cynthia Fee. Thank you for being a friend. However, I don't think I realized this, Ben. It was originally written and recorded in 1978 by Andrew Gold. I did not know that. Look at that. I went and listened to it. I mean, it's very, very... the, The Cynthia Fee version is a very faithful adaptation Uh, And what's funny is Andrew was like, I kind of wrote this as like a throwaway song. It just sort of came together. I didn't think it would be this big deal. But his version did hit the Billboard pop chart. And then, of course, it gets picked up as the song for the show. And my goodness, just obviously explodes. And Mm. probably to the point that more people know that version than Andrew's original. But yeah, I didn't realize that until doing research. Like, oh, A, there's another version. And B, it's the original. (laughs) Yeah, that's, wild. that's awesome. I had no idea. That's pretty cool. And it is, gosh, it is one of the most classic television sitcom theme songs from the 80s. And also, I think it's one because it's only like six or seven lines. It's one, it's easy for everyone to remember all the words to. That's true. Yeah. And I would say, although I have a funny story about that, we'll have to come back to that in chemistry, chemistry? class. I yeah. can't wait to hear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would almost defy you to name a more popular television theme song from the 80s. I don't know that there is one. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You think more people know that? Ninja Turtles. You think there are oh. people and there? You think there are boomers right now who know the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle song? I here's what I want. I need a Venn diagram of people who can sing the entire TMNT theme song and the entire Golden Girls theme song because those are my people. That's who I need to find. I want to know the people who can sing the Mr. Belvedere theme song. <laughs> It's such a weird song. In the right tone, too. Yeah, exactly. With the right accent. So the theme song, obviously, opening up every show. Every show, there's a pretty standard formula. Hey, if you find the right formula, don't mess with the good thing. Seriously. So a lot of the episodes do follow this particular format. You have one or more of the women. They become involved in some sort of problem often involving family members. It could be men. It could be an ethical dilemma. 
at some point, they're going to gather around the kitchen table. They're going to talk about the problem, usually late at night, often while eating cheesecake or ice cream or some other dessert. And then usually one of the other girls is going to tell a story from their own life, which somehow relates to the problem. Or if you're Rose, probably has nothing to do with the problem other than just providing comic relief. Some episodes also feature flashbacks, either to previous episodes, to events not shown in previous episodes, or to events that occurred before the series began. So like a lot of shows, you know, use of those flashbacks to fill out our characters and their stories. And although the writing was mostly comical, this show does have a lot of like serious, dramatic moments. It has sentimentality. And some episodes just kind of end and you're left with like a bit of a gut punch. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of those in chemistry. Yeah. Not surprisingly, you know, we talked about a few things that were sleeper hits, right? The Thing, sleeper hit. Labyrinth, sleeper hit. Out of the gate, not the smashing success. Well, completely different story here. It is an instant ratings hit. And pretty much right away, The Golden Girls becomes an NBC staple on Saturday nights. It becomes like one of their leading shows and really is an anchor for that Saturday night lineup. And it almost always won its time slot, forcing ABC and CBS to desperately struggle to find a show (laughs) to compete against it in that block. So it just really took off. Ben, we're here in the sun. I'm starting to bake on the lanai. I might need to go indoors, but before we leave history class and seek the air-conditioned refuge of the indoors, is there anything on the history books that we need to get out in this class? I will try and keep you from melting on the lanai, and I will pick up just a few quick slabs of butter that are melting right along with you. You mentioned finding the perfect formula for episodes. Let's talk about the geniuses behind that. So Kathy Spear and Terry Grossman are the head writers of the series who wrote the first four seasons. Susan Harris, who did the pilot, she's like around for a little bit longer. She contributed like four episodes in the first season, but then she kind of goes back into semi-retirement. She still reads all the scripts, but she's not there all the time. Right. 89, Mark Sotkin, who had previously wrote on Laverne and Shirley, uh, joins this series as head writer mm. uh, and guides the show and what ends up being like the final three seasons. Right. And then a couple of people, Richard Vaxi and Tracy Gamble, who were previous writers on 227 and My Two Dads, also join in. But the weird thing about all these writers today, so Christopher Lloyd, again, not Doc Brown, <laughs> different Christopher Lloyd, <laughs> explained that the usual situation for these episodes was for all of the junior writers to be assigned the same scene to write, with the one judge the best version becoming the one that's chosen. And he said to quote, this created a great deal of stress and competitiveness amongst those of us who weren't in that inner sanctum. I don't know. That's like the one note in the production of this show, like getting it off the ground that I thought was really weird to like pit all the writers against one another instead of collaboratively coming up with the best scene. I thought that was a little odd, but I don't know how often this happened. He said that was just the usual situation. Yeah, it's hard to know if it was friendly competition or if it actually became problematic. It's hard to say. You know, some people are very competitive and they're actually they feed off of that. So it's possible that's the case, but yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah, absolutely. I thought this was interesting. There's an episode in 1987 called Empty Nests where some neighbors come over who are dealing that their 
teenage daughter has gone off to college and they're feeling sad. And although the episode itself didn't do really well, like the creative team really liked it. And basically the next year, there's the show that gets off the ground, Empty Nest. That's about a, a widower pediatrician who has two adult kids come and move back in with him. And these two shows are airing at the same time, and they frequently guest star on each other's shows. So the girls will be on Empty Nest, and then the Empty Nest cast will be on Golden Girls, which I just thought was kind of fun. You don't see that a lot of like two shows that are like in a shared universe but have totally separate plots happen. I never saw like Alf show up on Three's Company. Right. Yeah. the The Empty Nest episode is basically a backdoor pilot that fails. Yeah. And so they have to really retool it because it was different characters. And we'll talk more about that in contemporary culture. But yeah, for sure. Okay, perfect. Now, if if you have not sweated to death, may we retire inside for some cool iced tea lemonade? Yes. I think there's one place in the house where all the chemistry happens. Let's head to Blanche's bedroom. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) We're going to knock. Make sure it's unoccupied. Yeah, for sure. Uh, But then we can get a seat at the edge of the bed and gab about our memories of this show. Okay, we are here in chemistry class, ready to talk about our memories and get some other listener memories about this show. Ben, do you want to kick us off talking about your earliest memories of Golden Girls? Yeah, I mean, this falls a little bit into my thriller sort of philosophy. When we talked about Michael Jackson's thriller, it's like, I don't remember a time before Golden Girls. You know, you're sort of just flipping around on television. It's always there. It's funny, contemporarily, it really came back into the zeitgeist in my life in two times, in modern times. I mean, as a kid, I was a little too young to really get it. I mean, maybe even now I'm still a little too young to get some of the jokes. I don't know. But it came into my life in two ways in adulthood. And one was I was working at a summer camp around like 2005. And I had a coworker, another camp counselor, who was obsessed with this show. Okay. I mean, dude knew every episode, knew the background of the actual actresses. He'd quote it all the time. It was just like a part of his being was the Golden Girls. Very similar. Like, I hadn't known enough about the Golden Girls, but he would definitely run up around being like, you're such a Dorothy. You're such a Blanche. Like, you're such a Sophia. Like, he would call people out all the time. <laughs> and, uh, th- you know, there's going to be a little insight into his love of this series later you and I are going to talk about, uh, probably in, in contemporary culture. But his love was exciting. The other one was I had to travel a lot for work six or seven years ago. And the hotel I kept staying at when I was in the city It was like not one of those real cable companies. It was like fake hotel TV where it's just a little weird. Everything's a little off. Like it's not like you're not like, oh, this isn't Time Warner or whatever. Okay. And um, every morning, the only good thing on while I was getting ready for work was Golden Girls. So I would watch Golden Girls for like five (laughs) days a week when I was in town for work every morning before I went in. It was solid. It was great. That's amazing. Yourself? Were were you a sunshine boy scout who stole a teddy bear from Betty White? How did you get into Golden Girls? Very similarly, you know, I would have been six when this show aired. And as a child of six, this is not aimed at my demographic. So I don't ever remember it being a thing that like my family gathered to watch or Uh, anything like that. So really, I think it mostly came back probably around maybe junior high or high school age. So my grandparents... My dad's parents lived in Florida, Sarasota, Florida, and 
from the time I was in grade school, really, like let's say fourth or so grade, I could go down and visit. And usually I flew by myself. That's, wait, how old were you? I was like fourth or fifth grade. I don't want to repeat this because I feel like I had, you've told me this on a, in a different season, I had the same reaction. But it was just awesome that you got to travel at that age by yourself on a plane. Yeah, I guess so. Like, I, I don't know. It's funny. Like, I don't even think anything of it. But yeah, I mean, you know, like that was, again, back when your parents could walk you up to the gate, watch you right. get walk down the walkway and get on the plane. And then someone met you immediately at the gate. So we all forget those times if we live them. But yeah, that was that era. And I would go and visit them, you know, usually for a couple weeks in the summer or so. And I just remember my strongest memory was this show being on at my grandparents' house. And of course, it was at a time when this show was on, I felt like 20 channels in 30 different time slots. It was <laughs> like you could watch the entire run in one day if you caught everyone is what it felt like. And I just remember... Almost every time I go down there watching it, my grandparents loved it. We would all sit around while we're like doing a puzzle or playing poker or whatever. And it'd be on in the background and we all got a kick out of it. That's like my most favorite cherished memory is being Aww. able to kind of watch it with them. But yeah, awesome. it's like, it's always that kind of thing in the background that's always there. Like you said, you you go to a hotel and you you get fake cable, but somehow it's there and you're on an airplane and it's like one of the choices you can watch. It's just had this staying power, which is so fantastic. Yeah, a thousand percent. All right. So those are memories. Let's also talk about our recent rewatch. So as typical, we don't just go off our memories to talk about the show. We want to re-engage with it. It's part of our assessment to see how it holds up and what the experience is like. Ben, can you tell us a little bit about roughly how many episodes from what? Did you get some from every season? It sounds like you watched a lot from season one. Tell us about your rewatch experience of Golden Girls. Yeah, totally. And this helps because like when people hear this, like I have not watched every episode anywhere near it. Sure. I may have takes or comments or things where you say, what are you thinking? What about X, Y, and Z? Well... I didn't see those episodes. Here's what I saw. It's and a tall order to watch 180 episodes, everybody. We love it you, is a lot. but that is a lot. And we're on a very fast-paced recording this season. So, we are. you know, we did our darndest. So, as I say very often, support your local library. I went to our local library, and I checked out seasons one, three, and seven. I okay. want something in the beginning, the middle, and the end to see how the tone changed. So, I watched the pilot. In season three, I watched the first episode, which is where Sophia meets somebody with Alzheimer's on a bench at the boardwalk. Mm. Uh, and the sunshine scout that I mentioned stealing a teddy bear. Oh, yeah. uh, episode three <laughs> from that season, where all the ladies pose separately unknowingly for a sculptor and they pose nude. It's oh, a very, yeah. very funny episode. Yeah. Uh, and then in season seven, I accidentally watched what I thought was the season finale. It is not. Just a random two-part episode where Blanche throws a party for 12 dudes oh. called Mid- Midsummer Night's Dream, where she's like... I am definitely going to get some guy tonight. Wow. Very good two-part series. And then, of course, the two-part finale in season seven with Leslie Nielsen. Okay. What did, uh, what did you dabble in? What did you dip your toe back into for the, for the gals? I probably revisited roughly 40 episodes. I'm did you really? Yeah. I That's amazing. You know, some of us are gold star students. Some of us just, you know, scratch by D- the bare minimum. Student. It's great. Compa- oh my gosh. I, I supported my local Hulu streaming service because uh, <laughs> they all are currently on Hulu. So uh, probably a couple years ago, I started just rewatching the show. It's probably a pandemic rewatch. And I want to say I got somewhere between season two and three. 
So I had that in the, the back of my mind, but I did go back and pick up several episodes from all of the seasons. I wanted to get kind of like you, a sampling of each. I didn't just right. want to watch the beginning and the end. So I'm not going to tell you all of them because it's just way too many. But um, we can talk about some of the standouts and when we talk about our favorites. But I definitely made sure I picked up the pilot and the finale, of course. And then I, I went to one of those listicles of best episodes. Sure, and I made sure yeah, I picked yeah. up at least a good number of those because they were recognized as being amazing standouts, must-watches. Sure. Yeah. Uh, when we talk in contemporary culture, I will also talk about I, – I did also pick up several episodes of Golden Palace. Oh, uh, good for we'll you. Get to that. Wow. We'll get Captain to that. extra credit over here on 80s High. Whoa. Listen, this is my topic. I have to come at least semi-informed. I can't show up and be like, I watched three episodes. The show's <laughs> crap. You know, like I end up picking up like the three worst episodes ever. So, yeah, that was my rewatch. A lot of great stuff there. Ben, in the episodes that you did rewatch, were there any favorites, ones you loved, whether it's the whole episode or were there moments? What really stood out to you as like, oh, this is gold? I mean, Midsummer Night's Dream is actually a really good two-part episode in season yeah. seven. Just that, yeah, like Blanche throws a party for herself and only invites 12 guys. Besides like the normal like, Blanche, what are you doing from the rest of the, from the, rest of the girls? This is all perceived as like kind of acceptable and normal. Mm. Like right. <laughs> if you and if you and I were one of twelve guys invited to a party by just one of our female associates and we were the only dudes there, we'd be like, okay, this is super weird. But even the guys <laughs> at the party seem like totally fine to like hang out, snack, talk, like I mean, it listen, just, is this any different from the Bachelor. Is this really it the felt Bachelor? Really in the Bachelor. I mean, come on yeah. now. Those people really have no qualms about being on that no. kind of a show. I think Blanche was ahead of her time once again. She yeah. she's the reason the Bachelorette and the Bachelor exist. <laughs> it's it's got it's seriously gotta be. But it's a great I mean it's a really good introduction to all the characters. I really enjoyed that. And the the only other one that really stood out to me among all those, that the non-obvious one that stood out, is the season three first episode. This one where because like I laughed yeah. and I cried, oh. like the the Sunshine Scout who's like holding the teddy bear ransom <laughs> from Betty White's childhood is just awesome. She just starts off so sweet and just turns right. into this diabolical child. She's like an evil punky Brewster. Like she is great. And doesn't she try to enlist Blanche's help? But ultimately, I think Rose is the one that has the final one up on the girl, right? She literally shoves the girl out the front door and yanks the bear out of her arms at the same time. Like It's, it's great. Awesome. Because this girl has the upper hand for so long. And you're like, these, these women are powerless against this child. Yeah, and suddenly yeah. Rose just kind of disarms her with her charm and then yeah shoves her out the door grabs the bear and she's like the best smile on her face that's exactly what i oh wanted to say God. it's like because it's like it's like a good the bad and the ugly shot where it goes between the faces back and forth back and forth back and forth back and forth yeah. but it's between betty who is just glowing ear to ear <laughs> and the other girls who are so <laughs> proud of her is really really good so like you laugh so hard in that episode but then sophia befriends this man on a bench at the boardwalk and like for like a month straight, they've been hanging out on the bench, talking, they get along so well. And you learn like near the end of the episode, the dude's got Alzheimer's and like yeah. it gets suddenly so serious. Yeah. And like Sophia can't face it. She doesn't want to hear it. He's getting worse. And like, so as far as just like a television episode that I could think of, of anything, it had like 
such high highs and then such gut punches at the same time. The writing was so good in it. That's an amazing season premiere episode right yeah. there. Like it, like you said, it takes you on a roller coaster of emotions. The, both stories are solid, and uh, you're like, okay, season three is is going to be right. amazing. We're here for it. I, now, I talk about a fourth of the episodes that I watch. So to be fair, tell us the ten episodes that really stand out for you. <laughs> for you from your no like what really stuck out to you what are some big episodes for you so there's a couple in the first season there's one called a little romance it's episode 113 rose dates jonathan a psychiatrist who's also a little person you know one thing we're going to talk about in this show is how they tackle a lot of like subjects that weren't really broached a lot and you know not only do these women have dating lives but like people are dating they're not dating older white men that are, you know, in that same age bracket or whatever. And so just the fact that, you know, they are like, okay, well, she's dating this guy and he's a little person and that's going to cause turmoil and there's going to be jokes, but there's also going to be like a lesson at the end. And for a while, she's like, she doesn't want to reveal the relationship and she's afraid they're going to have to break up. But ultimately he breaks up with her uh, because she's not Jewish and he has to date a, right. or marry a Jewish woman. <laughs> oh and so, but again, it kind of takes you on that, um, that journey of like, you know, I think we can all understand this concept of dating someone that you're afraid won't be accepted by family or friends because they look different or are different or maybe have an occupation that, you know, seems beneath or different or unacceptable or, you know, whatever. And so I loved it for that. Uh, There's a a great season two episode. Isn't it romantic? Okay. Dorothy's friend, Jean, visits Miami and Jean is a lesbian. And once again, there's like this struggle of does she tell her housemates about Jean? But Jean and Rose strike up this friendship And they really get along and they're doing all this stuff together. But Jean's conflicted because she's like, I'm starting to develop feelings for Rose. But if I tell her I'm lesbian, she might defriend me or, you know, just like not want to hang out or feel like it's really awkward. And so, again, you know, she's from this small town in Minnesota. Is she even going to understand what that means? So it just takes this lovely little journey. And, of course, you know, Betty as Rose plays it so well. And so that one's great. Also another season two one, Dorothy's prized pupil. You mentioned Mario Lopez makes an appearance yes! in this the show. He's the prized pupil. Dorothy's tutoring this, this young boy. Uh, he enters this essay for this contest where it wins first prize. But through this process, there's a discovery that he's in the country illegally. And oh. Dorothy feels like she's to blame for this. And... She's convincing Mario to, that's the character's name as well, to uh, fight to stay in America. Uh, But he goes to this hearing and he's going to be deported. He has to go back. And again, she's just kind of gut-wrenched by this. But, you know, he's like, I'm going to undergo the procedure to legally return. But again, tackling immigration and the complexities and the hardships of that, uh, amazing. Again, this is only the second year of the show's run. Also in season three, Mixed Blessing at the end, I think it's the one of the last episodes, Dorothy's son, Michael, is getting married to this woman. Uh, not only is she older than him by about 20 years, but she's African-American. 
the character Lorraine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there becomes this whole plot line of like, you know, Dorothy's worried about their age difference, but then you meet Lorraine's mother and aunt and they disapprove, which at first Dorothy's like, oh, good, we're on the same page. But it's like, oh, no, not because of the age difference, but because Michael's white. And so there's this whole oh, like, interesting. oh, you know, there's this whole conflict about that. And, you know, they all agree they're going to stop the wedding. Uh, but the couple elopes and basically it's revealed that Lorraine is pregnant. And then like all the women have to kind of agree. They they have to just be OK with this. So it doesn't really have like a a great ending where everyone's like, we can get past our differences. It was just kind of like. We're not thrilled, but we just, you know, for them and for the, the our grandkid, we're just going to have to, you know, suck yeah. it up and be okay with this. A few more, Sick and Tired is a two-parter at the beginning of season five. And this is a really interesting story. So Dorothy is sick, uh, but she can't get anyone to believe her. She goes to a doctor. It's all in your head. What kind of sickness is it? Like, what are, what are the, what's going on? Well, so we'll get to this. So, like, okay, what we okay, don't okay, know sorry, for sorry. the longest time. It's like, it's in your head. You don't know, well, get over it or, you know, whatever. And she's just being constantly turned away and is struggling for people to believe her. Um, but later she's diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. Oh. Just her um, relief at putting a name to this unknown syndrome and knowing that it's not in her head and that she's not making it up and that there's something that is real happening to her. And she even has this really great confrontation with the doctor later who originally kind of wrote her off. And, you know, and she's like, compassion is important and you need to be a better doctor and a more compassionate person to your patients. And she says this great speech. Get it. But the, the great part of the story is this is actually Susan Harris's story. So she had chronic fatigue syndrome, oh, oh. which was largely undiagnosed uh, for a long time, wasn't well known in the 80s. So part of this storyline was to kind of like make this a known thing so that people were aware of it. And if they had those symptoms, again, to be like, okay, this is real. There's There's something here. And I've just, I've known people who have, battled health issues sure. and just being able to put a name to it has been such a relief to them. So the fact that this episode tackled that I thought was so amazing. Good for them. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, there's also 72 hours. This is also in season five. Rose learns that she may have contracted HIV from a blood transfusion. I read about this one. So you got to watch it. Yeah. And she has to wait three days for the test results. So it's just her going through this like, torment of having to wait 72 hours to find out if she has HIV and she's struggling with it. And, you know, Blanche admits that, you know, she's had scares before because of her active sex life and she goes in to get tested and do the right thing. But she's <laughs> like, you she know, is. it's, but she ends up being this like knowledgeable person that Rose can confide in and whom she yeah. can kind of relate to. You know, we learned at the end she she did not get HIV. But again, this was a topic that was not widely explored sure. in the 80s. Sure. Certainly not for straight female characters, right? Like at this time, if it's talked about, it's really within the gay community. So the fact that they were talking about this, it's a big deal. Yeah, thousand percent. And then just to end on a fun note, one of my favorite episodes was The Case of the Libertine Bell, Season 7, Episode 2. The girls go to a murder mystery and what? Blanche is implicated in an actual murder. And it was no. just a, a fun, you know, we, well, Ben, we did 
a murder mystery. We did. We did loosely several. set yeah. to the theme of Golden Girls uh, during the pandemic. Oh my pandemic. god, that's great! That's, hey, that's contemporary culture. But yes, I know, that is but great. Like, but we did it, and so I was like, I have to watch this episode because we had this murder mystery experience, and there was actually an episode about that, which I thought was so funny. That's awesome. Okay, good catch. I like that. There were a lot more, but those were the ones that I felt were like super standouts. But my God, I mean, in, in rewatching all those episodes, I did not really encounter a dud in the bunch. You know, there's a few that are widely regarded as some of the worst episodes. I didn't actually end up picking those up. Okay. I know that Empty Nest Pilot was supposed to be pretty bad, or Backdoor Pilot, I should say. I think it's the last episode of season, hmm, it's like two or three. But anyway... Yeah, like, there really wasn't a bad one in the bunch. Yeah, I mean, that's what I always wonder, right? I feel like that's always the blind spot in doing this podcast. We're like, we always, you know, our time is limited. So we often look at, like, best of lists. And we're like, all right, I'm going to get as many of these done as I can. And how much of my time do I want to spend purposely watching stuff that everyone agrees is bad? And yeah. it's hard to just pick in the rough, right? If I were to just throw a dart at seven seasons of Golden Girls just to see what a random episode is like... Could be good, could be bad, you know, it's hard. So I'm glad you got to see a lot more variety and get a much more fair and sort of balanced picture of the Golden Girls. Well, we wanted to find out uh, from our listeners, Class of 80s High, hey, did you have any favorite episodes or moments from the show? Yeah, And solid. so we put it out to the group and we got some fun answers. So let's go through those, Ben. <laughs> so classmate Golden Boy Jim, oh, I love this, said, I just loved how they were strong together no matter what life threw at them. Jim said, I love the show, the energy, the friendships, and the topics were awesome. Always funny with a lesson to be learned. So right, Jim. So right. You are a golden boy. Thank you for yeah, that. Somebody was paying attention. What else do we have, Ben? Classmate B. Arthur Mountain's Pizza, which for those of you who don't know what the heck that means, we will explain that in contemporary culture. Actually, you need to explain it to me in contemporary culture. Okay, I, I didn't explain get it to everyone. It, so, okay, we're going to throw that out there. Uh, Gold Star, if you know what that means right. already. That's a deep contemporary cut. I really love it. The rest of us are going to find out from Ben here soon. So, <laughs> But he said, I believe John Stamos made a guest appearance once. That's all I got. Did you catch John Stamos in your 40 episode watch? I missed this one. I did not see. I'm going to look it up right now. Yeah. Is this the episode where he comes on and tries to hawk Oikos Greek yogurt for everyone in the house? No, you I know, believe... It's easy for digestion. It's good. I believe it was a crossover with Full House. Uncle Joey and yes. Uh, yes. Uncle Jesse came onto the, the set. One of those just big crossovers between networks. No, actually... John Stamos wasn't on this show. So uh, as far as we can tell, unless we missed something, Stamos was not one of those cameos. That's okay. It, the nature of a pop quiz is, you know, people don't necessarily get answers right all That's the true. time. And this might be an incorrect answer. You know, you get a silver star for participation and effort. We love that. That's <laughs> great. Um, you've sort of been dancing around it a little bit with your episode review, but I want to talk about just how the show had so much courage to not shy away from a single social issue that was out there. I mean, you've watched a lot more and you've given a good sample. My just like top umbrella is at least from what I had read and what I could study for this episode, there had been no TV shows prior that really showed like four much older women, much older, you know, we're retired, we're widows, uh, as like friends and young and vibrant and out like doing things and having like, real world person problems rather than just being like 
old and senile judging the main characters right. in movies and TV shows before that. That's what made it really one of the big revolutionary takes. Well, and that they're fully sexualized characters. You know, often yep. you wouldn't portray somebody in this age bracket as having active sex lives. And if it was, it would just be portrayed for like comedy, right? right it would just right. be the the joke. So the fact that they had active, healthy sex lives, that they were dating. Well, and they're all they're all employed. They've got jobs. Besides Sophia. I don't think Sophia's working, is she? Mom? Uh, actually, she does some volunteer work in some of the episodes. She does some volunteer work. So she work. does have some work, like, at a, I think at a hospital, at least in a couple episodes. I mean, we've got friends who are in their 30s, and they're already retired. I feel like, every, <laughs> like the boomer generation is retired very early, too. But, like, these gals are still hardworking around Miami. They're still out getting paychecks. Yeah, and again, I think you hit it on the head that they are these fully realized characters. They're not caricatures and that, you know, they're also exploring a lot of big groundbreaking topics in a television show. So it's not just the the portrayal of these characters, but some of the stuff they get into on the show, when you see a full list of it, it's like, oh, wow, that is quite impressive. So we've got stuff like elder care. Age discrimination. I already mentioned immigration policy. You also have sexism, sexual harassment, teenage pregnancy, interracial marriage, artificial insemination, adultery, bad medical care. Talked about that one. Addiction, death, assisted suicide, environmentalism, nuclear war, same-sex marriage, coming out. Already talked about HIV AIDS and homelessness and poverty Gosh, is anything even left? Of all of the things you're not supposed to talk about with your family around the holidays, I think I've just covered George <laughs> Cardlin's list of all the things you can't do at home with mixed company of your family. <laughs> that was a great comedic breakdown. You brought it up. I'm going to bring it down for a minute. I had this thought this week where you bring up these things that you say were revolutionary in the 80s, and you look back at this old stuff, and you say, why do you care? This is not good. This is not interesting from what I've seen now. It's always so hard if you weren't there or have not studied a lot before the thing of just how revolutionary the thing was. You know, if you look at the claymation stop motion of Clash of the Titans today, you're like, lame. But no one had seen anything like stop motion clay Clash of the Titans back in the day, and it blew minds. And so what's important is like now television is not afraid to tackle pretty much any issue that's out there. But for the Golden Girls to be such a popular show, everyone's watching it. And the writers and the actresses and the production crew to all make the joint decision that we're going to elevate this social issue that a lot of people are scared or uncomfortable or nervous to talk about, it begins to normalize it. It begins to put it more out into the lexicon and gives people tools and language to talk about it with other people and understand it and us as a as kind of a society. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to give Golden Girls all the credit for world peace, but I'm just saying these decisions give us the ability to help start to work towards improving these social ills. And that's what makes the Golden Girls crush. And none of these are outdated things. We're still grappling with every single thing yeah. I listed on this list. The only thing that might be different is like, 
it's obviously a different environment for coming out and same-sex marriage now. It's not completely not a thing, but sure. maybe that shifts more to like trans rights or to non-binary, you know, non-gender conforming lifestyles, right? Sure. Like things like that might be it's the next evolution of it, but by no means are any of these things like, oh yeah, we nailed that. Immigration policy, <laughs> check. You know, artificial insemination, there's no, you know, mores or taboos about that. Mission like accomplished of, banner across yeah. the aircraft carrier. We did it. But to your point, this was such a massive audience, but it approached it in a way that was relatable. And I think that's really, I don't know anyone who thinks this show is preachy or uh, I dare say woke these days is always the oh, kind of God, buzzword, yeah. the hot button word. But it's like nobody would back then would say this was controversial. It was just it was done with such this like masterful touch yeah. that they could do it in a way that I think was like subtly educating people. And like you said, Ben, it kind of opened the door for this to be a discussion, for this to be normalization of things that we would not talk about even behind closed doors, let alone once those sure, doors are blown sure. wide open. So this is amazing. You said you had a good story. So I want to try and tee up your good story. If I may just quote the show for a moment. Okay. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant, which I just want to throw out there, Scrabble bonus points for a 80s TV sitcom theme song, getting the word confidant into the yeah. lyrics. Uh, and yeah. if you threw a party, invited everyone you knew, you would see the biggest gift would be from me. And the card attached would say, thank you for being a friend. You said you had a story about the theme song. What is that tale? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not super interesting. It's only that as a kid, there was a part of that song I never understood the lyrics. And, you know, sometimes as a kid, maybe you had this experience with something else where you don't know exactly what words are being said. So your mind either just sort of like glosses <laughs> oh over it or is just like, this is a placeholder. I don't know what the real word <laughs> is. And I and Google is not invented yet. So I'm just going to put this on pause until Google is a thing. <laughs> okay. And then I can look it up. Great. It was, I never understood what was being sung with, and the card attached would say. I always thought it was like, and a card attack, and a heart attack. <laughs> and the, like, I never, for some reason, my brain did not grapple onto the actual words in the card attached. And so as a kid, I was like, that's just a word I haven't learned yet. And like, mental blank, fill it in later. <laughs> and then when I finally learned it, it's one of those moments where you're like, oh, for crying out loud, the card attached, it makes so much sense. But for some reason, it just didn't click for me. Um, I don't know if you've had experiences like that with other, particularly lyrics, song lyrics, where you're just like, what's being sung here? The one that sticks out to me that is notorious in my family is I love the Gorillas. Gorillas is one of my favorite mm. artist groups of all time. And one of their biggest hits around like 2008 was Feel Good Inc. And although it says Feel Good Inc. as the song name, they repeat that over and again in the song, but it sounded like Milk Dud to me. Oh, so I thought they were singing okay. Milk Dud, do 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 milk dud and i was like that's such a weird choice but i don't know maybe it's like something the kids are saying these days yeah. and milk dud means something else i was yeah. a goober it reminds me a little there's that um there's like a t-mobile commercial from years ago where like some guy is singing like push it's supposed to be pour some sugar on me but he's singing yeah. the wrong lyrics and his right, right, right. wife yeah. corrects him and everything in the car that's so funny 
Yeah. By the way, listeners, that's called a mondegrine. Uh, if you mispron- or if you misinterpret a word and lyrics especially, sometimes referred to as a mondegrine. So we have mondegrine, confidant, and what's the patio on the back of a Floridian house? Lanai. Lanai. There's a lot of vocab in this episode. I'm very excited about this. Everyone's going to win their next round of Scrabble. <laughs> I know we've been a little heavy for a minute. Can I just for a moment gush about Sophia. Do we have time for that? Can we get that in? This is chemistry, of course. Can we talk time. about the girls? Let's talk about all the amazing fun stuff. Go. Arnry Little Sophia is my favorite character. Okay. By a grandmother's mile. She mm. just like, oh my God. There's so much around she's the perfect mother without a filter. Like anytime <laughs> your mom has said something that embarrassed you around other people, right? every one of those comments, all the 1980s Alexas that everyone had in their home, listen and put them into the writers. And then they just wrote that into Sophia's lines. And that just like all of them like stabbed Dorothy so deep in her heart. Cause like Sophia knows her so well as her daughter. I mean, everyone, I mean, Sophia just eviscerates everyone in that house. There's a super cut for both Dorothy and separately Sophia's burns to each other throughout the seasons out there. And they are savage. Sophia's is better, I think, but she's so, so funny. All of the actors have amazing comedic timing. They do. I think that's what pulls it off so well. And again, shocking that Estelle had such stage fright because she killed it. Oh. I mean, you would have to think after a while the laughter that she would get would like somehow just convince her that you belong in that fourth chair with these three. Although yes. we should talk about the three chairs at the kitchen Wait, table. Yes, yes, but- thank you. <laughs> But it is an earned spot because you can certainly go toe-to-toe. And then I think you're not the only person, Ben, who feels that Sophia is one of their favorite characters. Again, everybody wanted like that sassy, tell-it-like-it-is grandma. Oh, You my love your God. sweet grandma who has a heart of gold. I had one grandmother who was the absolute sweetest woman, would never say a bad thing. And then another grandmother who was just a big old sass pot. And <laughs> I love them both so much. They were amazing totally. women. Um, one of my grandmothers is still alive, actually. But, I mean, they're amazing women, such great memories. But, yeah, there's just something about a sassy grandmother that you're like, oh, this is amazing and I'm oh here my God. for it. <laughs> well, and this is what's so well written about the show is, like, biologically, we all have moms. All of us know moms. And there are some things that moms have very similar. And so there's so much that's written about these four characters that we all can connect with. We all yeah. experience as being children of moms. That's that's my next novel, Children of Moms. Children of Moms. But then what makes them so great is they also say so many things that are unexpected for women right. of their place and age and time. Right. And that's the comedic gold. One of the, one of these like most grandmotherly scenes is, is when uh, that episode I talked about, season three, episode one, where Sophia's on the bench with the dude at the boardwalk. And it was like such the charmingly senior moment where I forget who starts it, but she says something like, have you ever been to the Sunshine Mall? And he says, oh, is that where, and I don't remember the name, but you know, is that where Katie Mills works? And she's like, no, not Mills. I think it's Stills. And the two of them start talking to themselves. And she's like, was it Sunshine Mall or Sunshine Fall? No, it was Glow Mall. And he's like, was it Katie Mills or Katie Bills? No, it was Katie. And they both like go through all that memory exercise. And you're like, neither of them remember 
anything actually about this scenario. Right. It was such a well-written like little senior exchange. <laughs> oh my God. But I'm talking about lines. The just the wonder the thing is so much of this comedy, especially from Dorothy, comes from just judgmental glares. Oh yes. Like someone rips someone else and the gag shot is at the reaction shot of the glare. Yes. That like usually Dorothy gives back, but it's like so much unspoken comedy is really good in the show. Yeah. B. Arthur nails that look. And what was so funny is I went back and watched an episode of Maud because I was curious too. I'd never seen oh, that show. Yeah, it's like that like you. It's like, yeah, yeah. And like very similar character. Like you can see the thread of B. Arthur across both of those, but she also just her facial expressions and the way that she would look and react. And it felt so natural, but you're right. She had that like steely gaze when she could turn it on you. Oh my God. Quite frankly, that may have been one of the reasons Estelle was just kind of like so clammed up because I think B was a very imposing, not only oh imposing gosh, 100%. physically, she was 5'10". Estelle's this tiny little woman. I think she's like under five feet tall. She's oh, just, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. so tidy. And then you had this towering woman with also apparently she's like what'd you say she was a military she drove trucks in the marines a military <laughs> a marine truck driver for crying out loud it's awesome it's like wow so i i have to wonder if i don't know if it was ever explicitly said but rue has said that estelle seemed much more relaxed on golden palace and oh, i have to wonder yeah. if just the imposing figure and the kind of Real life surliness of B. Arthur wasn't a piece of that because it seemed like a little bit of that melted away on Golden Palace. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I wanna I wanna dabble. Well, we'll talk about more of Golden Palace in contemporary culture, but I'm I'm interested to learn more about yeah, that. And, and I will just say, like, apparently B was very much like her character. She was a bit acerbic in real life. They were never really good friends. None of the actors really were good friends on the show. Speaking of chemistry, such amazing on-screen repartee and care and compassion, but weren't really friends behind the scenes. And this happens on a lot of shows where you're like, wait, these people aren't friends? Yeah, this is, right. This feels so authentic. Right. But besides Rue and Betty kind of striking up a little bit of a friendship, none of those characters really were friends beyond the show. It was really just that they had the on-screen chemistry, but when, you know, the cameras weren't rolling and stuff was done, they really weren't those best of friends you, I think, would imagine. Like, oh, they still get together after the show's off and have lunch together at a, you know, restaurant yeah, and reminisce. No. Didn't happen. Absolutely. So, Ben, you had already talked about Sophia being one of your favorite characters, but I need to ask a more pointed question. Both of you and our classmates of 80s High, which golden girl are you? We've all Ooh. taken these quizzes. We've all done them for these shows. Which Sex in the City character are you? Which golden girl? So, before we get your answer, which I'm dying to hear it, let's go to our classmates and find out who they identify with. And maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a common thread. Maybe there's an MVP. Maybe there's a most relatable character. Let's chime in with Lily Mae Carson. I don't know why. I almost wanted to go Southern accent for Lily Mae Carson as well. <laughs> Lily Mae Carson says Rose Nyland. And we said, well, why? She's like, she's sweet, but can be naive. So I guess Lily Mae identifies with that. Kindred spirits. Well, speaking of kindred spirits, Golden Boy Jim is also a Rose Nyland at heart. Oh. 
uh, who simply said, I feel we have the same characteristics and outlook on life. Okay. Well, we've got two showings for Rose. My goodness. Well, Ben, who do you think B. Arthur Mountain's Pizza most identifies with? <laughs> I, you be, get one guess. You get one guess, could everybody. Be B. Arthur. Could it, no, it's got uh, to be Leslie Nielsen from the series finales. Of course, Dorothy's Bordak. Why? Because I'm smart and sassy. <laughs> so good. So uh, good. So, Benjamin, do you have uh, an avatar character, one of these girls that you're like, if I was to be cast on the show, I am 100% this character? This is such a hard, interesting question. I feel like on another episode, I dodged this bullet that, like, we're all a little of all of them. Oh, I think, I think uh, when this we talk- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? So that's what I thought, but then I think I'm thinking of Stand By Me, mm. where like we have a little bit of each of the boys and all. Oh, of us. okay, okay, yeah. yeah. I could see a case for either one. Yeah. So I've got to I've got to do process of elimination. I'm not, although I worship her, I'm not a Sophia because okay. I'm just frankly not that mean. Like I okay. just don't cut people down <laughs> as much as she does. Sure. I'm not a Blanche Devereaux because my hunting days are long over. <laughs> I'm just not in heat 247. I'm also like not as dramatic, right? Like she's very sure. like, my goodness, dear, like fainting on the couch. And that's not me. Okay. All right. I think if I'm honest, I'm probably a little bit of a blend of Rose and Dorothy. Okay. In Rose, I would say that I am generally, I try to be kind hearted in my life. And I also have very surprising stories from my youth. That I'll bring That's up. true. People That's be true. like, I'm sorry, you did what? Picture it. Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> right. 1994. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, so like the, the part of Rose is there and then Dorothy, I don't know, once in a while I can have a, a nice zinger or witty comment. And I, you know, I try yeah. and keep the gang together. I feel like Dorothy tries to be some glue with everybody there. Okay. Yourself? Do you find you're a little bit of everyone? You know, were you Bob Hope visiting on the show? Who's who's your golden girl spirit animal? You hit the serve to me. I quickly hit it back to you. What is your opinion? Would you say there's one that you would, and you will not offend me, is there one that you think that uh, I most like? Oh, ooh, that's yeah. fun. Knocking your serve back at you. You're tremendously taller than me, so that's Dorothy. <laughs> Uh, that's one. I feel like you do have a lot of Sophia in you. Like you do have a lot of like zingers, judgy cuts at others, but you're not like face to face cut down. That's like a little sass, a little sass side slide with Sophia. Ben, you know me so well. I said I'm probably a mix of Dorothy with a dash of Sophia. Uh, Not only am I tall, but also Dorothy's a little salty. Oh yeah. Yeah. I am known to give my cranky looks at people like I I wear my expressions on my face a lot and I often (laughs) will get comments about it like I saw your facial reactions in that meeting and I was feeling the exact same thing like I can't help it like I just wear it on my face and also she's a little cranky right I can be a little cranky I will admit it and I I agree a little dash of Sophia sassy troublemaker is what I said like I've just got a little bit of that zing in there so I am definitely a Petrillo Zbornak all the way (laughs) My goodness. I wanted to mention this in history. I never got a smooth spot, but the person who I would love to answer this question is Queen Elizabeth. I just want to throw out there. I know there's a lot of people out there who are very interested in the goings on of the royal family. Royal family was big in the late 80s too. The Queen Mother, who Mm -hmm. was a huge fan of the Golden Girls and actually 
called upon the cast to perform several Golden Girls skits in London for her and the British royal family at the 1988 Royal Variety performance. I don't care who you are. Like, even if you don't follow royalty, when royalty calls and says, do your thing for me, you kind of have to show up. Speaking of mothers, the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth, calls you and says, my mother, the Queen Mother, is a fan of the show. You will come and perform for us in this royal variety performance in London. You got to show up. The ultimate mother-daughter combination in the world. (laughs) You can't say no. This is not hidden. This wasn't like a private thing. You can go on YouTube and find this performance. And it is a little odd to see them like not on their soundstage, but on a theatrical stage doing the Golden Girls, being themselves. It was it's it was bizarre. It was trippy. But I love that. I love that. Absolutely. Um, I don't think we have that kind of sway. I don't think we can get anyone no. to be like, we of 80s I podcast cordially invite you, but not invite you, command that you come and be on our show. We can't do that. We can basically only do that with Darren McBee, Malibu from Gladiators, a- <laughs> and and like the Bard for Hero Quest. Right. That's the only kind of like general loose influence we have. Could we summon Christopher Lloyd and Christopher <laughs> Lloyd, the <laughs> writer and the actor, both instrumental Christopher Lloyds of the 80s and beyond to come and uh, at our behest. Too Lloyd, too fast. I would watch I just that. want someone to do something at my behest. No one does anything at my behest. <laughs> That's all we want. That's all it's we all, want, everybody. It's all we want. The one last thing, this could fit in contemporary culture, but I just, I want to mention it here because it is chemistry class and I think it fits well. Um, this show has a huge LGBT following. Yeah. There's a lot of great reasons why, you know, this is again one of the few series of its era to include openly gay and lesbian characters. We talked about that pilot episode with Coco, the personal chef, uh, even though he didn't stick around. Blanche's brother is openly gay, Clayton. He appears in two episodes, uh, mm. the second of which is, we're introduced to his boyfriend. It's one thing to be a gay character, but to, again, be dating and like to see this partner, that's a big deal. We talked about that episode where Dorothy's friend visits, uh, who's lesbian. Also, you have Sophia's son, Phil, uh, who dresses as a woman. He's married to a woman. Uh, they have children together. You know, cross-dressing, I think it's still kind of the term that's in vogue. But, you know, that was a big deal at the sure. time that a man who was straight and married would be doing this. And, like, you know, again, the fact that they kind of broached that. Those are huge topics that I think helped people in the LGBT community feel seen. And then, of course, you put on top of that Estelle being this like massive force on Torch Song trilogy and just (laughs) nailing that character of the mother there. And Estelle in her personal life went on to do a lot of charity work and like fundraising for the gay community. She was just really instrumental and and was really cherished among, again, people in the community. And it was really funny. I was watching an interview with Betty and she's like, you know, talking about this huge following she had. And she's like, you know, we were told about this, like these gay bars that when the show would come on, they would shut off the music and all of the patrons would sit there and watch the Golden Girls and it came on. And she's like, once the episode ended, the music started back up. But it was basically like there was a moment of silence for 30 minutes at these like gay dance clubs where nobody was dancing because they were glued to the TV watching Golden Girls. I thought that was hilarious. I love 
lot more than I can describe because basically like just think of all bars, all clubs. The only thing I can think of that the music is off for is like on sports. Like if there's a huge sports game and it's a sports bar and there's no music. Yeah. So in the world of going out and drinking for people who are doing that, there's only two events that will bring the bar to silence to watch the TV. Sport ball and the Golden Girls. (laughs) Well, these days it's probably Drag Race. I think Drag Race still drag does race. it at the gay okay. bars, but okay. you know, okay. yeah. <laughs> but awesome. maybe it only happens with that show because Golden Girls pioneered the way. That That's was the amazing. show that yeah, cool. started it all. So funny. You talked about a couple of the other um, fun facts that I had here, but the only other one I have is that I mentioned that kitchen table. It always had three chairs. Yeah. And there's like an explanation to that somewhere. Do you yeah. see that? So apparently they didn't want to crowd the actors. And of course, with the fourth wall, you see this in sitcoms all the time. It drove me nuts. Why isn't somebody sitting on the other side of the table? Why are they all crowded on three sides? So stupid. Why are they doing that? Because in sitcoms, they never wanted anyone to have their back to the audience. And they didn't want to crowd the four actors there. So they would always have three of them seated. And then the other one would be going to the uh, coffee maker to put some right. coffee on. Sophia's making her sauce or, you know, Blanche is going to run and grab cheesecake out of the fridge. So they always had some kind of movement and the other three would be seated and they would always seat Dorothy in the middle again because B. Arthur always had these amazing facial reactions oh God, to so what good. was being said. And they wanted to make sure that B's face was visible to the entire audience. So not only was she the tallest and would be kind of like the pinnacle of the triangle, but also she <laughs> had that facial expressions that everybody needed to see. So uh, I never really picked up on that there were only three chairs. But again, one of those makes things sense. that you may overlook, but uh, there's a reason why. Totally makes sense. I love it. That's great. So speaking of Sophia's famous sauce, I think she's cooking up a batch right now, Ben. And I think we need to get to the kitchen for lunch. Oh, it smells so good. And I'm hoping there's a little extra cheesecake in the fridge. Let's try to enjoy some of that and then waddle down to contemporary culture to find out what happens next for our girls. (laughs) I would be honored. This looks like a very trustworthy sunshine scout. I'm going to have this uh, scout help me find my way down there. Oh, good luck, buddy. Beware and warning, this book is different from other books. You and you alone are in charge of what happens in this story. If that brings back childhood memories of reading past your bedtime and keeping your fingers positioned just so in order to go back and cheat death, then you are part of the Choose Your Own Adventure Generation, the fourth best-selling children's book series of all time. Since 2006, Choose Your Own Adventure has relaunched copies of original 80s bestsellers as well well as all new books, tabletop games, and graphic novel adaptations of the famous game book series. If you decide to use all of your numerous talents and much of your enormous intelligence to introduce interactive game books to a new generation, visit CYOA.com. Use code 80SHIGH for 20% off your first order. That's code 80SHIGH. This is my fantasy. Cheesecake. Whenever I wanted. Cheesecake, rich and whipped and waiting for me in this perfect little cup. Jello cheesecake snacks. So velvety in my mouth. With real cream cheese, because that's how I like it. Sometimes I want one with berries. This fantasy is officially reality. Jello cheesecake snacks. A slightly more indulgent side of jello. 
Chris, my tummy is the happiest and most full it's ever been in the history of this show. But if you see a little eight-year-old, she's got a wristwatch and an iPhone on her that belonged to me, and I can't get them back. Wow, this sunshine scout, she's something else, man. A tiny I, terror. Oh my goodness. Just stop that girl if you see her, because I am in I don't have bus fare to get home. I need help. Oh man. Okay, well let's soldier on here in contemporary culture. Uh maybe we'll get the hall monitors out in force Please try to find do. this girl. My God. So yeah, we want to talk about several things here in contemporary culture. Let's first talk about the end of Golden Girls, right? Yes. So by season five and six, really, there's talk around the writer's room and the producer's table and even amongst the cast that B is kind of ready to leave the show. Yeah, exactly. She doesn't want to stick around. I think she's kind of tired of doing this character. Maybe she feels it's a lot like Maud. I don't know. Did you find anything else about her just kind of like souring or just feeling like, hey, this chapter is done. I'm ready to move on. Well, she was quoted as as saying that she thought the characters had been in every scenario that could be possible. Okay. That, like anything that a writer could imagine, the girls had done it all. And B really wanted the show to end while they were ahead. She didn't want it to die off a, a sad, slow death. True showmanship. She wanted to go out on a high note. Yeah. And to be fair, a lot of sitcoms would overstay their welcome. Like you don't see tons of sitcoms that go out on a high note because they want to just ride that wave as long as possible. We all know those shows where like the last season or two, you're like, oh my gosh, just oh, get this thing off the air already. Here? What are you doing? Basically, long story short, they convince her to stick around for a seventh season, but it is indeed her last season. She's done. Yeah. So going into season seven, they know it's the end. And so their plan is, is they're going to give Dorothy kind of this send off. And in the hour long series finale, this airs in May of 1992, Dorothy meets and marries Blanche's uncle, Lucas, played by, you mentioned earlier, Ben. Leslie Nielsen, another king of comedy. Don't call me Shirley. Exactly. (laughs) But playing it very straight here. He's not... A comedian. He's not a cut up. He's not Frank Drebin, police squad. He's playing it like pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. But I like, I love, I, it's a great episode, but I love it. It's still funny. Like he and Dorothy's date, they sort of like decide to date as like a joke to like sort of yeah. humor the rest of the girls. And yeah. they go to like a crab shack with like mallets and hammers and they have yeah. a beer together and they actually kind of like really like each other and, you know, it flourishes into a real relationship. Now, Ben, do you think, That's a lot to try to jam into two episodes. Like, knowing that this is going to be the last season, couldn't they have laid out a better runway to this finale? Or do you think two episodes is all a show like Golden Girls needs? Look, I'm I'm not here to throw stones because I could never write anything a tenth as good as the Golden Girls. But I did write here that after I watched the season finale that I felt it was rushed. Yeah. I I felt like it happened... So fast and like really when you get to the end, you finally realize like B is going off with Leslie Nielsen and that's it. Like I was like, wait, no, really? This is the end? This is, wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a lot to, and then it's just done. I, I, I do feel like it happened too fast. I feel like this is something they could have introduced like mid season and like the dating kind of keeps going sure, on. Right. And then, yeah, like by the end of the show, they actually, you know, are married because like, my goodness, you know, Rose and Miles are dating forever. Like there's just a really long courtship that actually runs over into Golden Palace, as a matter of fact. I don't know. I just, I felt like 
they had good chemistry as well. It would have been fun to see Leslie on a couple more episodes and just to flesh that out a little bit more. Yeah, I agree. That would have been a better way to put it, I think. I would have liked that more. Nevertheless, that's what we get. And at the end of the show, it's written that she moves to Hollingsworth Manor in Atlanta. And Sophia is supposed to join her. And so she's going to move with Dorothy. But then at the end, she's like, no, I'm going to stay behind with these two ladies and stick it out in Miami. Yeah. That, of course, speaking of runways, is a little bit of an introduction into the spinoff series, The Golden Palace. Well done, sir. Well played. I'm going to put a pin in that just for a second, because this series finale of The Golden Girls was watched by 27 million viewers. Holy cow. And as of 2016, it was the 17th most watched television finale. Oh, no kidding. There you go. Right behind Snorks. Right behind uh, <laughs> Dino Riders. Alf Fraggle Rock Dino Riders. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So a lot of people glued to their television sets to see what would happen of our golden girls. Well, you didn't have to wait too long because around this time it was announced that the show was going to go on, but with a slightly different premise. And I never knew this. Until we did the research for this episode, I had never even heard about this. Really? Okay. I remember when this happened. And in fact, I associate this memory with my grandparents who lived in Florida as well. I don't know if it came up at that time or maybe we started watching the Golden Palace. But yeah, it did kind of pop up. So here's the deal. Uh, Golden Palace is, again, an American sitcom television series. It's a sequel or continuation of the Golden Girls And it moves on, of course, without B. Arthur. Now, B. does show up in a two-parter about halfway through the first season. So we get a little reconnection of our main four. But the Golden Palace begins where Golden Girls ends. They're in the now-sold house in Miami, the one we've known so well. Sophia, Rose, and Blanche have gone in together, investing in a Miami hotel called the Golden Palace. And so they're going to be hoteliers. Is that the right? Hoteliers? Hoteliers? Is is it for anyone or is it just seniors? Is it like the the best Marigold hotel? Is it just for old people? Or like, who's this for? No, you know, Miami's a bump in place for all ages, man. (laughs) It's not just for the elderly. Come on. It's perfect. So this show changes things because now we see our cast of characters They're running the hotel. They're in their jobs. Now, we've seen them at work before in Golden Girls, but largely, you know, it's them at home chatting about stuff. You know, the work's more in the background. But yeah, this is actually showing the dynamics of them trying to work together as this threesome of owners and also a new cast of supporting characters. We have Cheech Marin. What in the actual is happening right now? As Chewy Castillos, he's the hotel's chef, and a young Don Cheadle. Like, what a powerhouse of dramatic acting. What is Don Cheadle doing in the Golden Palace? Don Cheadle plays Roland Wilson. He's the hotel's manager. So these are like the two employees that stick around. So this is the second hotel that Don Cheadle manages. The Golden Palace and Hotel Rwanda, which are, these feel very close for Don Cheadle. I get it. This is sort of like his bag at this time. The hotels that he manages. Little did we know Hotel Rwanda was a (laughs) spinoff. The Golden, 
Cheadle's like, I've worked at the Golden Palace. I could easily do a hotel in Rwanda after that. That was so hard. That was intense. I forgot Don Cheadle was in Hotel Rwanda. My goodness. Right. Holy crap. Uh, yeah, so he's the hotel's manager. So these are like the two staff who kind of stick around from the old ownership. And then there's Billy Sullivan. He plays Oliver Webb, who's Roland's foster child. And he's kind of like preteen kid, a little bit of a little like smart mouth. He's characterized as arrogant and streetwise. I don't know if I saw that, but he's only in like a handful of episodes. They eventually just write him out of the season. I guess he didn't really kind of fit well. But this show runs uh, on CBS, so it is picked up by a different network, from 1992 to 1993. One season, everybody. Uh, only a single 24-episode run before it is canceled. It just doesn't quite strike the popular note that its predecessor did. And in retrospect, I think it was Rue or Betty who were like, I think not having B and the Dorothy character there they were never able to overcome that. And it just didn't hit with people. That's what I'm wondering. Like me having not seen it, like, but you saw it. Like, I think it makes sense to move the three girls out of the house because you can't keep them in the house without Dorothy. But like, so you got to put them somewhere new and fresh. But what did you feel about their chemistry without Dorothy? Yeah. So, I mean, they really did try to explore in a couple episodes. I think in season six, was it Debbie Reynolds came on an episode? And that was kind of like quietly them trying to judge Debbie's interactions with the other cast members and characters to see if maybe she could be a replacement for the Dorothy oh, character once B left. They played with that a little bit, but again, ultimately didn't, they really didn't find anybody who would work. So yeah, in this new show, I don't know. I, I mean, it takes a while for it to find its footing, but some of the episodes I thought were funny. I like that it gave the characters new things to do, new points of cooperation, competition, sources of frustration. It, it felt a little less natural with them running the place. I mean, Sophia's like, what, 87 now? Right. Like, she's, oh my God. <laughs> and she's working at a hotel. Give this woman a break for crying out loud. She's earned her retirement in peace, but... I will say probably the best episode was the one where B comes back and yeah, you sure. get the, the four together again. Like, you know, there's kind of silly stuff with the Cheech character, as you might expect. You know, the, he, he's often sort of like the, the silly storylines. The, the Don Cheadle, of course, does an amazing job, as, as Don will always do. And, you know, there's a few episodes like uh, his character, Roland, and Blanche butt heads. Like, Blanche is trying to be a control freak and he's uh, like, I know yeah. how to run this hotel. And they have like, a pretty big fight argument. You know, they eventually reconcile, but yeah. I thought it explored some interesting areas, but certainly it wasn't as bad as I expected it to be. I'll say that much. And I was actually pleasantly surprised, like, this isn't bad, but oh, different vibe for sure. And I think certainly not as the, the formula there was not um, nearly as good as the formula we got in Golden Girls, for sure. Yeah. Whether it's the premise or the fact that, that B is noticeably absent. Yeah, oh, well, that's that's a fair that's a fair analysis. And I read I read even that when the Golden Palace got canceled, that Getty wanted to remain in the Golden Verse, and that she goes back and joins the cast of Empty Nest to yeah, keep so it going on. Let's pick up these spinoffs. You mentioned Empty Nest at the top. This show not only has a spinoff, the spinoff has a spinoff. There's a a grandchild spinoff of this show, which is just. Crazy, and I don't know any other show that's done this. There might be some out there I'm not aware of, but you mentioned Empty Nest. So this actually also aired for seven seasons. I did not realize it had such a long run from 1988 to 1995. 
Now, we mentioned that backdoor pilot that was very unsuccessful. Well, Susan Harris went and kind of retooled the idea of the show, and it stars Richard Mulligan as this recently widowed pediatrician, Dr. Harry Weston, yeah. with his two adult daughters, and they return home to live with him. So this show was actually really successful. And Richard Mulligan not only was Estelle Getty as Sophia going on to that show, but Richard Mulligan would make guest appearances on Golden Girls. So they had this crossover swapping of characters like you mentioned. Once Golden Palace was off the air, Estelle guest starred as Sophia quite a bit in several seasons of Empty Nest because it was running, you know, well beyond the end of Golden Palace. So like you said, the, the Golden Verse continued with Sophia Petrillo. <laughs> but then Empty Nest gets a spinoff, Nurses. Great. This feels like net, like Russian nesting dolls. You're like, if you like yeah. Golden Girls, check out Empty Nest. If you like Empty Nest, now do Nurses. Like, I, yeah, like you said, I've never seen all these like spinoffs of one, unless you think of like, I've never watched these. But maybe with your podcast interest, you have. But these like CSI spinoffs, like there's a CSI in every town. Like, are those all in the same CSI-verse? Oh, that's a great question. I would guess, but I don't know how much they cross over. That's a really yeah, good I don't point. Know. Okay. Or like Law and Order and Law and Order SVU. Right. Are they all, all the other in the ones same, like, are like all those in the same order-verse? Yeah. yeah, like, I don't know. <laughs> well, also Nurses had a little known spinoff called Orderlies. No, I... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> order. Wouldn't that be great? Orderlies. It's kind of like below decks for Star Trek. They're like, we're going to focus on all of the like unnamed characters that were usually just red shirt cannon fodder. We're going to make this the focus. I love it. Nurses aired uh, 1991 to 1994, also created and produced by Susan Harris. And the series revolved around a group of nurses working at that Miami hospital same one as Empty Nest's Dr. Harry Weston. Now, I did not pick up any Empty Nest or Nurses episodes. But I do remember Empty Nest being on. I remember like thinking it was fine, but I wasn't, again, it didn't quite have that same, uh, it was a different show than Golden Girls for sure. But uh, very successful, seven seasons. And to be clear, I mean, I didn't see a call out that there were appearances of any of the four girls in Nurses. I don't believe so. I think Richard Mulligan showed up in it. But to my knowledge, I don't think any of the Golden Girls were in Nurses. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But that's pretty much all my memories from D-Nest. And again, didn't pick those up. I wanted to focus mostly on Golden Girls and, and again, a little bit of Golden Palace. Perfect. Okay. So again, a show so successful, it has a spinoff and a spinoff spinoff. That's an accolade not too many shows have. Speaking of accolades, Golden Girls received critical acclaim throughout most of its seven-season Run, it won 11 Emmy Awards, including Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Comedy Series twice. It won three Golden Globe Awards for Best Television Series, Musical, or Comedy. Mm -hmm. Each of the four stars received an Emmy Award for their performance, making it one of only four sitcoms to achieve this feat. Did you see what other shows are in this category of all of its ensemble cast? Getting an Emmy? Yes. So a roommate in college introduced me to one of them, and I saw a good number of episodes because he always loved to watch this show. Okay. And the last one in my list, I watched fully beginning to end with Mrs. Ben, and it's like one of our favorite TV series we've ever watched together. All right. Well, let us all know. What are those shows, Ben? So you've got All in the Family. Okay. Will and Grace. Thank yep. you, college roommate. Also, Ben. Uh, <laughs> and Schitt's Creek, which is just a goldmine of writing and performances. 
conspicuously absent from this, Seinfeld, right? Because oh, I don't sure. think Julia Louis-Dreyfus ever got an Emmy. I think uh, everyone but Julia, which is criminal. 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 But yeah, what a, a coveted spot. This is the EGOT of Emmy Awards for ensemble <laughs> casts. Crazy. The series also ranked among the Nielsen ratings top 10 for six of its seven seasons. So accolades, I think all in all, it had like 68, I think, Emmy nominations or something like that. Just oh, yeah. wild. That's yeah, like yeah, 10 yeah. per season. All earned and probably not enough. We probably need more. You know what? Why didn't it have 30 more? <laughs> <laughs> Who were these jerks that didn't want to nominate it for all the ways it was amazing? How dare you? So out of the normal syndication and home release that we usually do of every kind of topic, really the standout that I just want to point you to, like if if today, if you're just cash, want to watch some Golden Girls, it's all on Hulu, which I did see that the Golden Palace was introduced to Hulu January of 2022 in honor of Betty White's 100th birthday, which I thought was just kind of a fun little thing. And that's where I watch my episodes. So Perfect. Yep. But if you really want like the definitive Golden Girls experience, that DVD set you want is from November 9th, 2010. It's the Golden Girls 25th Anniversary Complete Collection. It's a 21-disc collection that, duh, has every episode. But also these like great individual biographies with each of the four actresses. But the part that I really like is it's in this collectible packaging, which is a replica of Sophia's purse. Is the, oh, nice. is the DVD box set. Like, that's hilarious that it's Sophia's purse. I love that so much. Also of interest, and I'd be curious if you knew about this or saw this, Ben. There's a television special that airs in 2003, The Golden Girls, Their Greatest Moments. Did you no. read about What's this, learn about there? this? So this airs on Lifetime. B, Rue, and Betty reunite to co-host this retrospective of the show. Sadly, Estelle was not able to attend because she had retired from show business and was also experiencing failing health and was just not up to being able to be a part of it. It features clips, montages from their favorite episodes, musical moments from the show. They share never-before-seen bloopers and outtakes, behind-the-scenes footage, and they also have interviews with the executive producers, Paul Younger-Witt and Tony Thomas, as well as creator-writer Susan Harris. So... Much like you said, there's a definitive DVD version that you should check out to get all the the juicy details. You should also apparently go watch this TV special if you want even more amazing behind-the-scenes access. And this became the highest-rated special in Lifetime Network's 19-year history. Oh my god, that's amazing. So in 2003, people still couldn't get enough Golden Girls. You know, in 2003, there were other odd things that happened with the Golden Girls. Oh, there were some other uh, quite saucy moments. I think I know what you're talking about. Very saucy. There's an off-Broadway, all-male drag performance called The Golden Girls Live, where they do shot-for-shot, do Break-In, which is a season one, episode eight, and Isn't It Romantic season two, episode five. And this ran from the summer until like November in the West Village. But they got a cease and desist order from the creators because they never secured the rights to Produce yep, it. That's a no-no. So it ran just a hair shorter than the actual The Golden Palace. Uh, didn't really survive very long. That's amazing. The other two cool adaptions, well, cool is a stretch. Uh, okay. One that's really interesting. You can go out there and Fascinating. These are fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, you can find Golden Girls 3033, 3033 yeah. on YouTube. And I watched an episode and I'm actually slightly intrigued by the idea. 
it's the audio from the Golden Girls episode, but the yeah. audio has been put into like hand-drawn animation that looks like the Jetsons. So it's the Golden Girls in the Jetsons world, same episodes. Meets a little bit of Transformers. It's a really interesting <laughs> yeah. like yeah. combo. I, I scrubbed that episode and I was like, okay, this is... It's a choice. It's a, it's a choice. It's a thing. Like yeah. I don't know if I would watch more of it, but you know, it's an homage, certainly. And uh, I yeah. love it for that reason. Uh, ben, did you also see that there were two puppet parodies of this show? Yeah, like, what's up with this? <laughs> so, thank you for being a friend in that Golden Girls show, colon, a puppet parody. I, I didn't check these out to see if I could find any, like, recordings of these onstage performances, but if you can't get enough Golden Girls and you need to see them in puppet form, Fraggle Rock style... I don't know. Maybe it's out there. Maybe you can still find it. Maybe it's still playing. Maybe they got the rights and so they they didn't have to right. cease and desist. Who I would knows? be so curious. Now, Ben, I imagine outside of the U.S., people are like, I don't get this show. This is a U.S. audience. It doesn't translate. Lost in translation. Good day, sir. <laughs> uh, how accurate am I? In that assessment. I say nay, sir. I say nay. <laughs> we Here's the thing. We earlier talked about like how one of the most universal human experiences is that you have a mom. And mm. so this story translates around the world so well. And what I love about this, you know, this is one of the earliest TV sitcoms ever produced by Disney. Disney's usually very protective of its IP, very litigious, very no, no, no. Not yeah. necessarily a yes collaborator. That's right. But after the success of the Golden Girls, the equivalents of Hollywood around the world said, hey, can we remake this through our own cultural filters? And Disney was like, have at it. In a rare instance. And so there is a Golden Girls-esque TV sitcom in at least Chile, Egypt, Israel, Greece, the Netherlands, Philippines, Russia, Spain, Portugal, Turkey, and the UK. At least. At least. Like that at is- At least. And again, this is not like it's being broadcast in the Philippines and Tagalog. It is a re- like a total remake in Filipino culture- that concept. And I just think that's really cool. I love how like far reaching the principle of the show went. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of the office because the office has that same success, right? Starts in the UK, comes over to the U S uh, both standouts in their own right. But then often unknown is there are so many different versions in different countries of this concept of the office. Again, very similarly, this is translatable anywhere. You yeah. can understand awful bosses, workplace culture, annoying coworker dynamics. We all understand family and mothers and friendship and all of that kind of stuff. So I did not realize what a massive appeal this show had. So much so that everyone's like, we're doing our version in our country. That's awesome. Pretty rad, right? So not only did this show inspire all of these international versions, it also inspired here in the U.S. shows with a different idea sure. of this ensemble cast of female characters, largely based on the huge success of it. So, you know, in history, we mentioned that CBS and ABC were struggling mm -hmm. to compete with Golden Girls and its massive success. Well, you might be thinking, what about the show Designing Women? Well, Designing Women was intended to be a competitor show on CBS, uh -huh. and it premieres in 1986. And again, was kind of created to be this counterpoint, but also focuses largely on a cast of four women. There's also, you know, a male character in there as well. But again, highly successful show. I think it ran for, I believe, six seasons. Mm -hmm. 
also uh, mentioned was Desperate Housewives in 2004. And then I think everybody can relate to Sex in the City, 1998. Just another ensemble of almost similar kinds of characters. You can almost map totally. like a Blanche to a Samantha and a Rose to a Charlotte. Well, it's that same quizzical culture of like, you're such a blank. Like that whole, like right. they, were, they were archetypes that people fit into very similarly. Exactly. So I thought that was awesome. And um, Ben, I, I need to know, Mountain Pizza, what is this all about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So- Help me. I've got no clarity since we last spoke. Please, please, please tell me. <laughs> what is the joke? What am I missing? No, absolutely. So like, it was really interesting. In the last decade... Both B. Arthur and Betty White sort of come back to the pop culture zeitgeist. Before that, there was like a flash in the pan where like, I, I think I sent you a skit that was like a Clueless parody in which yes. the girls all act like the Clueless characters in high school, which is kind of fun. It's so good. But a decade ago, B. Arthur and Betty White make these comebacks, both very different comebacks. I don't know if I could call B. Arthur's a comeback, but around 2010, there started a Tumblr called B. Arthur Mountain's Pizza. Okay. I think it's someone who got a hold of Photoshop and was like, what are the three things I could put together over and over again? So they are just different images on this Tumblr photo blog, different shots of B. Arthur, Photoshopped in with different scenery of mountains, and then a random shot of pizza. And there are hundreds of these images. Okay, what am I... Am I missing something because there's nothing to get? Is it yes. just the randomness yes. that's funny? Okay, so there's The randomness no, is the joke. There's no layered joke that I am missing here. No. It's just the dumbness of pairing these three things together. That's it. That's it. Okay. All now, right. There's a lot more clarity in Betty White's comeback, which is actually oh, goodness, pretty yes. awesome. So in 2009, she's in the proposal with Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds. She does great, and it kind of like launches her back into like the public awareness of like, oh, remember Betty White's awesome yeah the following year she's in that awesome Snickers commercial in the Super Bowl you know it's like oh you're grumpy you're not yourself have a Snickers kind of thing she's great yeah. in that. everyone's like oh my god she's awesome she's so big on that it just like starts to snowball so she, then she hosts yeah. SNL that spring in 2012 she gets a Grammy for spoken word for narrating her own autobiography if you ask me Oh, that's great. So she's like out there. She's getting out there. And 2015, she comes back on SNL for the 40th anniversary special. And I remember this. I want to rewatch it so bad. But like her big moment is she's in that reoccurring The Californian sketch, which is like oh, the yeah. drama of. And it's always yeah. like a Bill Hader. Fred Armisen's in it a lot. So she's in that sketch where she like kisses Bradley Cooper, which is big. She voices Bitey White a toy tiger in Toy Story 4 okay. in 2019. And during all this time, she does have a recurring important role on Hot in Cleveland, which is a show yeah. that ran from 2010 to 2015. She's in 124 episodes in that time. Yeah. So prolific. But she, I just, I love that she had this, you know, she was this major 80s star and she was older when she started the show, disappears for 20 years and then comes back like a freaking hurricane. Good for Betty White. Well, and she's in so many shows, we can't really list them all. But I mean, she's really in a bunch of stuff. It's maybe like more minor roles, like she's showing up for an episode here or there. But really, there's no actual stop to her work in film and television. It's 
quite impressive, but you're absolutely right. She really reached this fever pitch going into the 2010s that I think lasted, uh, sadly, until, you know, she died, was it two years ago? Yeah, just about. I think she was like a few weeks away from her 100th birthday. Oh, yeah. She's like everybody's adopted grandmother that you love so much. And uh, yeah, she's just fantastic. Well, I think we should close out contemporary culture. Give the final say in this class to our class of 80s high. Because mm-hmm. we had one more question for them. Why do you think this show is and was so beloved? A Lily Mae Carson says the women were so relatable and they often said what people were only thinking. Mm. Amen, Miss May. Amen. Absolutely 100%. Golden Boy Jim says it's a great show about how interesting and vibrant senior life can be and how true friendships can last a lifetime. Love it. Thanks, Jim. And blasting out of a Tumblr photo blog, B. Arthur Mountain's Pizza says it's great writing and hilarious actors with a wholesome premise. Hard to go wrong there. True. Could not agree anymore with our listeners. Thank you so much. Ben, in true Golden Girls fashion, it's time for the, well, this is going to be our fourth vocabulary word. It's time for the denouement. Ooh. Spelling B. Can you spell denouement? Uh, I could not. I needed uh, needed the little squiggly lines to tell me. That's a tricky one. Thanks, Squiggles. Uh, But it's time for the denouement, where we wrap up all of these storylines and put a bow on them so the audience can laugh us into the credits. Let us gather in the living room, grab a favorite seat on the rattan furniture, and share how we think the Golden Girls holds up today. Let's hope it holds up better than this wicker furniture. Oh my God, it's breaking. It's breaking. It's cracking. Oh my God. Wicker, man. Is Wicker always just in perpetual breaking mode? I don't even know. It always is, right? Like, how fast does that stuff start to come apart? Oh my gosh, how does it even ever work? Ugh. Check out this really nice wristwatch I have, and who's got a cell phone? Just do uh, not do not open locker 158, no matter what you okay. hear from inside of it. Okay. <laughs> but I do have my possessions back. The hall monitors came in clutch. Uh, Retribution may or may not have been had. We're not here to to say, but we are here to say in math class, our final assessment of how the Golden Girls holds up today. Prepare everybody. This is where we're going to lambast the show and how awful it is. Ben, what is your critical just slaying of this show? How do you think Golden Girls holds up today? What do you have to say? You know, okay, here's the thing. One of the millions of wonderful outputs of 80s High is I love that my father is now a dedicated fan of rewatching Quantum Leap after hearing our episode where I was like, Dad, okay. I didn't know if the show was going to be good. And it's awesome. And like, I think you're going to like, he heard the episode and now he's like almost binged all of Quantum Leap <laughs> and he loves Quantum Leap. Amazing. And so I, I gave him a warning. I was like, hey, we're, you know, I, I finished my research for Golden Girls. And I think it's another quantum leap where, like, it is fantastic. It is so funny. And the writing is so good. Like, just get ready. Get ready when you hear the episode and cue it up on however you watch your stuff. I think they use, not a Roomba, a Roku. Yeah, Roombas don't do TV. That's just the floor. Uh, <laughs> they use a Roku. Oh, maybe the new Roombas do. Who's yeah, to say? Who's to say? Who's to say? I mean, it's, <sighs> it's reiterating a lot of what I said in chemistry and a lot of what you and I have said so far. But like the writing is just so good. 
this is groundbreaking and that these are like the first time at least that I could find in the research that this many seniors are written like real fleshed out 360 degree characters. The show tackles both the comedy and the tragedy so well. It left before it jumped the shark. It had Mm. a good pace, a good run. It still feels good to revisit the show because it is largely aged incredibly well. No one had any horrific, really sad, troubling crises afterwards. You know, it feels comfortable to revisit it and love it. You know, a couple of things to really like walk away here. I don't have a better way to put this, so I, I'm just going to quote it. Uh, in just August of this year, The Guardian did a retrospect on the Golden mm-hmm. Girls. And quote, this is a bit of a longer quote, so stick with me for a second, but here's what we got. Maybe it's because the Golden Girls themselves prove that the family you make is sometimes stronger than the one you're born with. Dorothy, Rose, and Blanche feel at times aged out of their previous lives, careers, spouses, the world, all seem to be pushing them away. But the girls are proof that you can and should forge new bonds, even if it seems like your old life is done for, that you can make a new family even if your old one rejects you. The Golden Girls pulled back the curtains on aging, showing the ways in which old people can be flawed, passionate, monumentally stupid, brave, even at times almost heroically horny. Which is a wonderful <laughs> phrase I want to see if I can figure out how to use going forward. Heroically horny. And it did so with an almost uh, reckless willingness to be as wildly funny as it possibly could. So I thought that was a great quote of The Guardian of just like why the show endures so long. But I think my final takeaway of like just rewatching what uh, I saw is like the show makes me want to be a better friend. Like their hmm. friendships are so good. And they, they have like an ability to like talk about serious issues with one another and really get into it. And although there's some like hardcore jabs and teasing especially from sophia like you know they've always got, they are the last line of defense for each other right always and they will like cancel everything to sit down figure it out with one another they're always there for one another uh it just inspires you to want to be a better person in in your circle and i think there's no greater tribute to pop culture than the pop culture making you want to be a better version of you mm, man that's what i got you normally say, I'm a hard act to follow. That is a nearly impossible act <laughs> you got to follow. This. That was amazing. No surprise. I think this show still holds up so well today. We've talked about all of this. The character chemistry is brilliant. The comedic timing of the cast, flawless. The topics are timeless. The show wasn't afraid to tackle big subjects, but it approached them in that subtle and human ways. And often, even though it used jokes... It would use those jokes and like the unfamiliarity with something like HIV AIDS or with, you know, interracial marriage uh, to draw characters to the humanity of, quote unquote, the other that was in the storyline. And ultimately, as you mentioned, underneath the snark, the flaws and the barbs was compassion. As we would say these days, I think they were each other's ride or die. That's what they would be. (laughs) The whole creative team behind the project gets so much credit from the producers from Susan Harris, the writing team, everyone who championed this idea of showcasing four women who were independent, supportive, didn't need men to survive or thrive, who dated, had sexual lives, comforted each other in losses, and celebrated their successes, who sometimes fought and disagreed, but always respected and loved each other. I think at the heart, that describes all of our truest friendships. And that's what makes this show so damned beloved the world over. 
Ben, thank you so much for coming on this joy ride with me. Truly <laughs> joyful. I don't know why it took me this long to come up to this show, but you know, again, we have this short season and I was like, oh my goodness. If I'm choosing my own adventure, by the way, go to the website, everybody. Oh, yeah. Go check out Choose Your Own Adventure. Use the offer code, buy lovely things. They're a great sponsor. But also, choosing the adventure of doing Golden Girls is like, oh my gosh, how did I not think of this sitcom earlier? So I'm glad we were able to, to fit it into this compressed season. But the show must go on, as all shows do. Uh, let's end this one on the highest note possible. That being, of course, what can we expect for our next episode of 80s High. Chris, I am honored to get to reveal the next topic on our mutual shared golden podcast, as some might say. As we know, the Golden Girls slapped so hard because it flipped your expectations. Here were a mm. bunch of old grannies who you expected to be playing bingo and to smell like mothballs, but then oh, they suddenly revealed themselves to be these <gasps> hilarious, deep, creative, and heroically horny women. <laughs> Frankly, if I were to be honest, these four ladies were more than meets the eye. Oh. And thus inspired me that for our next episode, I am swinging for the fences with one of the most optimal mega properties of the 80s. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you who are not paying attention, it might still be shocking that I have selected the Transformers. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Transformers. More than meets the eye. So good, right? Hits oh. so hard. I'm not going to lie. I'm scared. This is like doing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles level IP from the 80s. It's yeah. a lot. It's a lot I don't know a lot about yet, but I'm excited to get into it and find which Transformer is my spirit animal. I want to know. Ooh. Absolutely. That's our next question. Which Transformer are you? We know your golden girl type. What is your Transformer type? But other than that, the only way you're going to learn all of this history, Ben, is to tune into the next episode of what? 80s High. Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the rumor. Stay radical.